0: Stacks Podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. We're in season two, covering the top 100 albums of the 1970s. And now your hosts, John, Josh, and Matt.
1: Hello there, it's Wednesday,
0: September 8th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm joined by Matt and Josh on the coming the Stacks Podcast. Whether you're a regular, a first-timer or just meandered onto that because you thought you were listening to a podcast on books or what else could it possibly have been? Hair, su- hair care supplies? Stacking and maybe things. Stacking things along the way. Perhaps you're here, but if you are, we welcome you nonetheless. Uh, I'm John. I'm joined by my fearless co-hosts, Matt and Josh. We always start each episode with a check-in to see how they're doing. We'll start this week with Josh. Josh, how's life over in the bend? up around the bend if you will
2: it's uh it's, it's great i am surrounded by wildfires every day not mm-hmm. close but enough close enough and uh yeah listening to tunes
0: i feel like if i was a more clever host i would start rattling off things like that billy joel song we didn't start the fire like oh, yeah. i was just thinking of helen keller and then i don't know much else i said, i don't know why that one sticks with me you know do. jfk is the other the other one. jfk jfk go away or whatever that's blown away i have to blown say, away yeah JFK. Deep, go away yeah deep <laughs> incisive cup co- well you know how much i like billy joel so you can even then i was just like ah oh, this song let's you know can we get this over with so i can let what like you know can I watch like Tawny Katane roll around on the car again? I think probably was what I was hoping for at that point, you know, <laughs> some, or, or like, or like uh young MC bust a move or something I think was around that time. So, yeah. Billy,
3: Billy Joel had uh Christy Brinkley on the back of his, of his motorcycle. She was kind of, you know, it gets, the, I mean, well, I mean, she wasn't spread spread out like Tawny
0: Katane was like on that car, but you know, he well, had Christy, his moment. Yeah, Christy Brinkley was a dime piece. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's just a different, you know, R. R I P Tony Coutine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So I mean, <laughs> good for me, but the fact that she was married to Billy Joel was doing nothing for, you know, me in terms of my video watching, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially when you were competing in a in a world with like Bobby Brown, you know, you know, with cherry pies and Tawny Coutine rolling on cars and who else who else comes to mind, guys? Yeah, yeah Christy
3: Brinkley's appearance in uh, in Uptown
0: Girl was much more classy yeah it was classy but i mean were you watching music videos for classy or were you watching it for trashy or ashy <laughs> like, <laughs> i i i liked it all
3: i thought music videos were awesome and i would just watch yeah. all, even if i didn't like the song i was like i feel like i need to watch this because it's mm-hmm. on so yeah. um that's
2: a good uh you yeah. know a good um essential question Essential question oh, yeah. favorite music videos or or like what
0: songs do you Think of the music video running in your head when you listen to it, at which point I can say every song between 1987 <laughs> and 1994. So, every yeah, popular well, song, every popular song, exactly. But I checked in with Josh. Matt, you've been somewhat quiet over there. I want to make sure I give you your space. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm a
3: little tired, but I'm, but I'm, I'm all right. Better than last week when you listen yeah, to all last
2: of week. the things, things that, week that were was, wrong with yeah, the
3: Yeah. The things, the things that were <laughs> wrong last, last week are all right now. And, um, you survived the yeah. hurricane. Yeah, we only just we just got a bunch of rain. We didn't really get the uh, you know, what everybody else got. So uh, no, we're good. We're hanging in there.
0: Well, in this podcast, we've seen fire and we've seen rain, guys.
3: Haven't we?
1: <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> Not how even a scripted
2: joke. <laughs> are you, <are> you <laughs> going to another element? Uh, I, hey, how am I? Oh, no. No no uh, flint <laughs> flint
0: um flint, yeah. Uh no. I you know I'm I'm John man every day is every day's coming up millhouse over here, so yeah <laughs> <Is> <laughs> that a good thing yes,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: deep deep <laughs> Simpsons reference right well, not that deep, but if I guess you have to have
2: watched The Simpsons, so yeah,
0: which you did, Matt, right, and
3: I did I just don't yeah.
0: remember i I
3: just remember it's millhouse being a sad character
2: generally yeah. not that not that, not that episode yeah. not that episode okay,
0: <laughs> <laughs> hence the everything's coming up, mm-hmm. you know what I mean mm. so. Well, we have a very interesting album this week. You've heard the montage right there, and I would certainly say I think one of the albums is going to be familiar to all but um, the most novice listeners of the 1970s. So why don't we start right there? Matt, what album are you covering? What obscurity are you covering this week? We're doing some album (laughs) called Dark Side of the
3: Moon Mm. by a band called uh, Pink Floyd, I believe is how you
0: say it. Mm, So yeah. I've heard of them. I, I did enjoy this week, Matt, when you shared a clip from Met's announcer Ron Darling talking about Pink Floyd and making <sighs> oh, reference yeah, right. of Pink Floyd being planetarium music, which I have mentioned yeah. before on this. Well show. They, yeah.
3: they were they were the the they were showing um I think there was I think it was like Saturn or Jupiter or something you could see in the sky and the camera was on that during the game and so Keith Hernandez, one of the announcers, was talking about like, Oh, he started like talking about like all the planets and what you can see and, and like and uh, Ron darling's like, "What are we at? A, are we at a planetarium or something what 's going on?" We thought we were at a ball game, and he goes, "What do we listen to Pink Floyd?" you know So he just kind of came in with that, so I sent that clip to the guys because yeah, it 's inescapable. You think of uh planetariums you got to think of pink Floyd
0: right
2: and then yes. yeah, sometimes after we talk about these albums, you start seeing references and Weird coincidences. And yeah. Them.
0: Some of it is uncanny, and some of it is the fact that Apple Music is deeply haunting <laughs> yes. Matt's computer and yeah. thus making it seem yeah. like everything is on the yeah, newsfeed. So, all my had- newsfeed is just like, hey, did you just
3: cover this on your podcast? I was like, how did you know that? <laughs> like, what is. So Matt's
0: like, God damn it, enough of this. I want to get back to the porn I was looking That's right. That's right.
3: Give me the good give me the good
1: stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well well, a totally different direction. Josh is going to be covering a band that's familiar to the listeners of CTS, but maybe not to those that might be first timers or newcomers. Josh, share a little bit about what you're covering this week.
2: Yep, we're covering Can's Future Days, the last album that we'll cover by this band.
0: I do want to point out an error that you made right there, Josh. I believe it is "can"
2: is how you say <laughs> that name right there. Yeah, as can.
0: As the, yes, in the capital.
2: Just, just sing it like "fame," except "can." Can. I do. I do appreciate the
0: uh, the krautrock bands like new having the exclamation point and "can" being all capitalized stylistically. Mm-hmm. No one with the umlaut though, which was highly disappointing.
2: In What's terms that of- band that's three exclamation points? They're all chick chick chick. I think they're called. You know. um, oh yeah, I think you're
0: right. Panic you're right, at the Josh. disco had several exclamation points if I remember correctly, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, or they had panic. I right? think they just had one. Panic, point. yes, <laughs> at the disco. Okay, so just one, just placed in a unusual spot. So, all right. Well, and and no exclamation points for this one. But I will be covering a interesting point of David Bowie's life, to say the least. Uh, when we're doing 1976's Station to Station, um, which is our first trip back to Bowie in a while. As we mentioned last week, we will have had three albums pass since the last time we covered Bowie and coming to this album, Station to Station. So should be a lot of fun. But uh, I believe that Matt has shared with me that he has some cleaning of the stacks to do. So we will start with that before we move into a revisit of the 1001 albums to listen to before you die. So OutKast is going to play us in, and then Matt will be on the other end. Ain't nobody,
3: Okay, so this is actually the cleaning of the stacks that I should have covered last week, um, but I forgot. So I'm going all the way back to when we talked about Paul McCartney and Wings when we did uh, Band on the Run. And if you guys remember, we talked about them going to record that album in Nigeria. And uh, one of the tracks was actually recorded in Ginger Baker's studio. And I think you were wondering, why did Ginger Baker have a studio Mm -hmm. in um nigeria so i did look it up um there's not really a great story behind it it's just in november of 1971 ginger baker just felt like that would be a cool place to open up a studio and she so he gets in a car and he travels across the sahara desert to um set up this studio he did bring along a documentary filmmaker with him named tony palmer and that trip was recorded and filmed and uh, is actually made into a movie called cleverly enough Ginger Baker in Africa. Um, <laughs> I, I watched a little bit of this. It's on YouTube. I think I you can it. also get it on Amazon. But uh, it's uh, it's mostly kind of just Ginger Baker playing a bunch of drums with a with a, with a number of um, African you know locals. But it also there's some of the footages is, is, are them traveling across the Sahara Desert, bringing like a ton of gasoline with them and filling up their cars with gas in the middle of nowhere because you know there's nothing there so um, so if you want more information on that you can always Google that but yeah he just uh, he, he went out to Africa and finally the studio was opened in January of 73 so it took over over a year for him to get that all set up um, but it was a studio It was called uh, Batakota or Batakata uh, studios and mm-hmm. that was open throughout the 70s where a number of Western artists as well as local artists recorded there so um so there you go just wanted to clean that stack um and i i also wanted to mention i forgot to mention this last week but since we've last met i've been to two concerts so i got to yeah i've done i've done Mm. i'm doing the concert round so i did get to see wilco and slater kinney uh they actually yeah awesome that was a great show. They played the day that Charlie Watts died, actually, in the, on the, in the Encore. Wilco closed. They were the, the, the headliners. And when they closed, um, they brought up uh, Corin Tucker from Slater-Kinney, and they played Honky Tonk Woman in, in, in um, honor of Charlie Watts. And, uh, and then last Saturday, I saw uh, 90s nostalgia. I saw Alanis Morissette in Garbage.
1: Whoa. Um,
3: and I got to say, guys, it was a good show. I got to say, there is a marked difference. When you see a show that is either predominantly or um, mostly, you know, mostly female. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a different energy there. Like when Alanis went on the crowd was just went to a different level It was just like I sometimes could could not really hear a lot of sing too much because everybody around I was in the lawn And everybody around me was just like belting out the lyrics and stuff So and I just remember it's like oh, yeah, sometimes concerts are like this It's just usually not the ones that I'm going to so uh, so that was kind of interesting, but uh, but it was fun It was good. I went with my sister and uh, it's not someone I usually go to concerts with. She had an extra ticket, so I went with her and some co workers. And uh, yeah, got a little of that nostalgia. Almanis basically did pretty much all of not in order but she pretty much did all of jagged little pill because yeah. it was the 25th anniversary uh, wow. tour of that of that uh, <laughs> I, album. I mean what else was she gonna yeah. do <laughs> i mean that she album, had a couple other songs she had like three other songs but thank no, she's got, like, you she's,
0: thank you that's the only song i, oh, I know she, of that's not on that, right? is that. On,
3: yeah that's on a different no album, that's, right? that's, that yes, junkie, that's that's on support former infatuated junkie that's the only
0: song there. i know of. wow you you busted that one out. I have, I own a copy of forest it. Infatuation uh, Junkie? Is sup- that what you said? Supposed
3: it was? former infatuation junkie does that
0: like so suppose supposed no, it doesn't. So supposed S-I- it? no it's not speaking. even like no like like uh for unlawful carnal knowledge right no, Where it's I don't like, think it's oh it's anything fuck like that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no
3: <laughs> i think it's just a lot of being dramatic but that's a long album that's like one of those 18 yeah. track like 75 minute long albums but mm. uh no she, she and then she, but also i that's what, i didn't know it was going to be the um the anniversary show so i going into it i'm like you know she's got eight or nine albums so but uh Jeez. but thankfully for me she, she mostly kept it to the old stuff so um
0: because
2: that's, that's what, what i wanted to hear the, the now, album garbage sold on the a hand. ton so
3: it's yeah. not surprising that, that album did uh, sell every, a ton,
0: yes. everyone would know it garbage on the other hand has three albums that i will absolutely co-sign as being awesome the debut yep. version 2.0 and then beautiful garbage were all very mm-hmm. good albums it was really their fourth album where it was not as strong all the way around but well and they just had a new album com- the first two especially and the third yes. pretty darn good too yep
3: yeah no for sure and they had a new album out last year actually but that but mm-hmm. like a lot of it did. wasn't bad they yeah they kept it uh, they kept it old school and they also threw in that i totally forgot about that romeo and juliet song mm-hmm. what is it number one crush or whatever but i would die for you, you that's know, number one a freaking crush? great yeah. song yeah oh yeah so Absolutely.
2: uh
3: yeah man so a uh, couple concerts i got another one
2: coming up in a week or two so are uh, are these all outdoor concerts
3: uh so far the next one's not (laughs) (laughs) so all right stay tuned in in
2: three weeks josh and john (laughs) (laughs) combing
0: the the stacks with just john and josh so yes so i will say
3: that the wilco show i had to show proof of vaccination um you needed Mm -hmm. proof of vaccination or you needed um a negative covid test to, to show at the door so they didn't care about the Alana show. They just let anybody in. <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> what,
0: what, joke can I, what joke can I make about that from an uh, Alana song? There isn't really one that, you know, ironic doesn't fit or you ought to know. You know, eh, not as easy. Right? You ought so. to know
2: my vaccination status.
0: <laughs> 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 ding, ding, ding. Josh, Josh is turn, always turn, on turn. point with this. Absolutely. He's so. the witty one. Well, I'll tell you, uh, we're going to hear the hives here in a second to introduce my segment. And then it's going to be a very interesting one because a lot of people we've talked about in recent weeks, guys, are featured this week. Okay. All right. So we are back. The so hives. That's team.
3: a. This a new segment. That's I we haven't <laughs> no done man, before. Picked, have we? I've
0: picked, I've picked i was gonna the ask hives. you later, but <laughs> I have I have said H- the hives die. All right, is what we're gonna do for the 1001. Oh, no, okay. Okay. I die. did share this information with you when? guys before, but because we not we, we don't, know what you're talking about. But that's okay. I've shared this with you in a, in one of the few pre meetings we ever had, in which I threw some ideas out, which goes to show how much my, I my attention. formatting and so it, you can see how much our commitment to formatting and structure helps our show greatly. <laughs>
1: so, I do not I mean, remember this meeting. I don't remember oh. it either.
0: I think you might be wrong,
1: well, but it's, it's okay. Uh, so it's much a good a song,
3: though, John. A so text I, I, I Yeah.
0: I mean I approve, you know, mm-hmm. so there's that. Well, really, that's kind of what your role is on the podcast, isn't it, Matt? You, you approve and pontificate. Yeah, he's the have, Ed McMahon <laughs> of the podcast. I have, I have final veto power. <laughs> Josh and I are over here slaving on putting this podcast together, and Matt just yep. slops in, Hey-o. just, you know, tells a couple <laughs> stories about seeing 90s alt rock and, you know, yeah, he owes <laughs> it. So, yeah. yeah. But every, everybody has their utility, Matt. So that's yours it's true. for our podcast. It's true. Absolutely. And your utility also has been strong on these uh, mm. 1001 albums before you mm-hmm. die segments so as a reminder for those that might not have heard an episode of the senate what we do is uh the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die i like a lot of those real imperative words like must die you know before all those different stuff like that so it's in there these are the albums we're going to talk about here with sort of quick Almost like a hot take. Uh, just first thoughts that come to mind of any album that we're not going to be covering in either the regular episodes or the cold listen hot takes. Are you so guys ready to take a take? It's a, a no listen somewhere? hot take. It's a no listen hot take. It's, like, yeah. it's, a, it's a... And in some it's, cases, no listen, no take. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't it's know. A, I've never heard of it. It's kind of like, you know, when you get drunk at a bar and you just throw out the first thing that's on. It's like, what is it? The... Uh, the Brian
2: Eno the questions right the uh, oh, yeah
0: yeah it's kind of like that you know we Ab- just,
2: what is it abstract obscure I can't remember now adjacent, I just texted you guys one. yeah
0: we just did yeah and I totally I just I did the freaking bio and I'm still fucking it up so that shows <laughs> that shows how oblique much strategies uh, oblique oh, yeah. strategies there you go that's what I was going for so so it's like oblique strategies but you know just with us doing it right here so one thing about uh 1971 is a lot of the albums listed on this list are albums we've already covered but there are a few are you guys ready I'm ready. Let's do it. Leading us off, David Crosby, friend of the show and <laughs> yes. 80, 80, year old David Crosby. Right. I saw on that. Who said um, that Neil Young is the most selfish person he's ever met. Yes. David he's Crosby he's yeah. is
2: often in the news. He is staying alive on social media for sure. Sure is. He,
0: he is. And he is also staying alive on this podcast because he somehow shows up Quite a, I wonder when David Crosby will leave our consciousness on this show because he manages to worm his way back in whenever we think we're, you know. I feel like just when we think we're gone, we'll, like, cover a <laughs> Melissa Etheridge album and have to talk about him being, you know what I mean? Just yeah. Somehow find I was find just going to look that up. In. Are we covering <laughs> Melissa Etheridge? Yes. So, well, David Crosby is on here with a hilariously titled <laughs> album right here. If only I could remember my name, guys, from 1971. Oh, God. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I'm wondering yeah, I, I, is it just more folk 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 stylings? Probably. Yeah.
0: I'd ask David Crosby, but I'm sure he's gonna say it's transcendent and awesome. So I don't know if he's a reliable source though for self evaluation of his own music. But. We
3: we are not covering Melissa Etheridge. Her highest ranked album is is twelve over twelve hundred in the eighties. So is it the uh, to to my window one? No, no, that's, that's ranked 90s. third. Oh, that's, yeah, that's Yes, I 90s. Am. That's ranked 4,281 in the 90s. Um, it's her self-titled album. That's her highest-ranked album. So I will no say Melissa that I had Atheridge. a friend
0: who thought that that song was called Come Through My Window, which always <laughs> made me laugh on like five different like layers. You know what I mean? That's funny. Like A couple different, a couple different oblique strategies you could take there to find that yeah. one funny. So, so, yeah, David Crosby is there. Are you guys familiar at all with David Crosby's solo works? Not that no. I know of. No, I'm not either. I'll have to to see. While we're going through this, Matt, will you look up on Spotify what David Crosby's highest solo track is in terms of plays? Track is. So we can see what what the representative David Crosby is. While you're doing that, let's – oh, gosh. Here is is someone that we did not cover but probably is. Don McLean, American Pie from 1971. What are your thoughts on the song American Pie, guys? Overplayed. For sure. Overplayed as Josh's. I like Matt.
3: it. I like that, it. I don't care <laughs> if that is so that. on brand, by
0: the way, for both of you. Because I think of that being sentimental. You know what I mean? And like a log and That's what that is. I think of Josh being like, uh this is I hate American Pie. It's probably one of my ten least favorite songs ever. It's it's catchy.
2: Just it, came up in uh, Black Widow, the movie. That's a mm. reference to that. In, oh, did it? In it? Yeah.
0: It combines many of my least favorite things overly sentimental nostalgic lyrics mixed into an overly long song mixed Mm. with like vague patriotism that i can't quite identify as being Mm. my patriotism jingoism and and overplayed and somehow a song that people think is profound despite it not being profound at all um which is so it's 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 the sweet spot of all things that I hate in a song. so <laughs> That's why um, I like it so much. I, do, I have heard that album before because someone did attempt to play it for me in college to say that I needed to listen to the whole album because American <laughs> Pie, I shouldn't do that. And I can definitely verify that the 21-year-old version of myself was not swayed by the album's um, dulcet tones. As so well. it, so it is
3: not like an album that we need to hear before we die.
0: Not for me. I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't want to, to besmirch the good name of Don McLean. But I think you kind of already is... did. I Not him personally. I just hate that fucking song.
2: So, <laughs> enemy yeah, of you the show, do, Don yeah. McLean. <laughs>
0: enemy, enemy of the show, Don. We, we should have both David Crosby <laughs> and Don McLean on the show in order to go. So if Don McLean or David Crosby, if you're listening, feel free. We'd love to have you on the show and have a little chat. We'll give you your own segment even. I think we're more wow. happy to do that. So, well, the,
3: yeah. uh, the 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 uh, the David Crosby song that's most played on Spotify is a song called "Music Is Love," and I exactly. believe it is from that album that we're just talking about right now. So it's the opening track of "If I Could Only Remember My Name." That's and very funny because it's, it's exactly ten what million you'd expect listens. Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay. There's a lot of boomers. Shout yep. out to the boomers listening to this show. I don't mean to to make that as a joke at your expense, but that I feel like nine million nine hundred and what 97 Te- of the listeners are probably boomers and then oh yeah three, something, something three like other that. people thought they were going to Crosby Stills and Nash and ended up <laughs> on that song so yeah so all right next up is two different Emerson Lake and Palmer albums guys we wow. have pictures at an exhibit followed by Tarkus exhibit from 1971
1: Tarkus from 1971
0: and Matt was so excited about both of those Emerson, Lake, and Palmer albums that he fell into the lake of fire <laughs> right there and joining us back. So if there was a uh, inartful cut right there, I'm sure Josh did a wonderful job. But you know what, Matt? You're coming what? back out of the lake of fire. Thoughts on Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? Prague rock superstars. I don't know. If I know any of their songs, I don't know it's them. It's one
3: of did those. Did
2: they I... do Wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald?
0: Nope, that's Gordon Lightfoot.
3: Oh, man. did
2: that one. No, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, up.
0: I know pretty well because I think of keyboards when I think of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer mm. because they are... Peak keyboard. So, not like Rick Wakeman, yes, you know, kind of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer had that thing. My dad is, you know, shout out to my dad, who we haven't talked about in a while. He is a large Emerson, Lake, and Palmer fan. In fact, I believe he listens around Christmas time to an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer song that I wish I knew off the top of my head what the name of it was. There, I believe they also did like an Olympics song, if oh. I remember correctly. Can you, while we continue talking, Matt, can you? youtube or google emerson lake and palmer and olympics to see if i'm totally nuts. why does
2: he wait until christmas to listen to that song is it a christmas song i think
0: there's a christmas song yeah okay. and i i'm it's so there's one prog rock song associated with christmas that my dad listens to and there's one associated with the olympics that my dad listens to or that like song it's is like, called that
3: song is called fanfare for the common man
0: yes fanfare for the common man matt that is
3: what i was it's, going for it is one of their most popular and enduring pieces
0: Yes, and if I played yeah. it for you right now, and as a matter of fact, Matt, yep. play on, that track ahead, yeah. right now. <laughs> Josh and Matt, listen to that right now. If you were a listener to the show, listen to Fanfare right now so that you can see. I'll give you a second. Go ahead, listen.
2: I'll even do you one better and put it in the mm-hmm. podcast. Oh, little, there we a go. A snippet.
0: Perfect. Well, I, I'm sure as they're listening to it right now, you will recognize that song. It sounds very olympic y or do Do-do-do-do, like, do, uh, and, do, and, do, yes. do. Yep. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, there's yes. lots of
3: French horns. That's yes. Emerson,
0: Lake, and Palmer? That is Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, although their stuff in the 70s is more proggy. Now, I will not force you to go down the rabbit hole again to find that Christmas song, guys, but I will do my first ever cleaning of the stacks next week with the name of what that Christmas song is that I'm talking You've about. You've never anyway, done a cleaning of the stacks? I don't believe I've ever done a cleaning of the
3: that's stacks. Not, that's not. That cannot be true. I'm going to clean that stack. H- that can't be true. This is his the entire... first
2: Emerson, Lake, and Palmer cleaning of the stacks. Now stack. that might be true. You don't do them <laughs> a lot. I'll give you that. But You You have can clean the stacks one. to see.
0: I do not remember ever doing one. Alright, I'm going to go uh, listen to all of our episodes. I'm going to okay. find it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you for <grow> like a, <laughs> a huge beard. So Anyway, well, now we get into some those things that are very relevant guys the first one is i can remember matt talking about this one the faces or i guess faces a mm-hmm. nod is as good as a wink ellipses to a blind horse from 1971
3: they got the weirdest names doesn't it like ogden's nut gone bad or something mm-hmm. like that that's is, like, an earlier album yeah ogden's
2: ogden's i just want to do that that facepalm emoji do you want to do that right now oh he, he just <laughs> I, did it he just actually I, did that, it
0: that, there we go. So actually, I know some of the songs on that album. Faces it's... are a good
3: band, though. That's a, le- that's a legit band. They're good. I don't know a ton of their stuff, but the stuff that I've heard,
0: I'm like, damn, that's really good. Absolutely. Better well, than Rod and...
3: Stewart's solo stuff. Hmm. Okay.
0: That's a, his... That's a... Aggressive a cosine as we can have right there mm-hmm. from you, Rod Stewart's in. So check that one out. All right, how about this for timely right here, guys? The next one is Felakuti and the Africa '70 with Ginger Baker live from mm. 1971. Matt could not yeah. have been any more better placed in terms of. That
3: was mentioned. I think that was mentioned in the uh, the Wikipedia page and the maybe the documentary too. But yeah, he definitely did some stuff with felakuti
0: and in, we've uh, in done. Africa. And we've done Ginger Baker with Cream, and we're going to be doing Fela Kuti uh, and his album, Expensive Shit. A little bit later in the cold listen, hot take, which I'm looking forward. Yes, to. and
2: uh, McCartney in the in the McCartney three two one said that seeing Felicudi while he was down there was one of the best musical experiences of his life. Yeah, even though think...
3: Felicudi went there to yell at him for like just... steal, <laughs> yeah. appropriating and stealing other music, you didn't so McCartney that. McCartney had to like
0: actually yeah defend himself by saying, well, "Look, me... I'm, I'm doing regular Western stuff." Well, did it, was it like he played him the album, right? Yeah. The entire, I just, like, think of, okay, now, Fela, let's see what you do. You know what I mean? And yeah. And, like, he just, yeah. Sorry, I yeah, don't do gonna... Fela Kuti I'm... was
3: not happy with him. So, uh, yeah. I mean, they, came, they got along later on, but initially, no, he was not. A, I don't, he didn't appreciate their visit to Nigeria.
0: I don't do a very good, like, happy Englishman. I do a much better, like, surly, like, you know. Drunk students, you know, what I mean, oh, you know, like I do that type of mm-hmm. British, you know, accent much better. So I got to work on my palm <laughs> <That> McCartney <laughs> that. That fits think.
3: your personality, though, doesn't it? John? It does.
0: It does. I, I find that more ideal. I think it's just all the times of trying to sing British when you sing punk rock as a kid, right? And just, yeah, fix it. Mm-hmm. here's another one we talked about, guys The Flame and Groovies, Teenage Head. Yeah. We didn't, we mm-hmm. didn't cut, well, that was the one that was kind of, um,
3: I think that was different. My brother was saying that that's a much different album than the one that we listened to, which mm. was Shake Some Action. Uh, mm-hmm. So I haven't listened to that yet, but uh, that I did ins- like that Shake Some Action album. That was I like a good album.
2: Double entendre, maybe, for the title of the album. 1971
0: Teenage Head is a pretty risque title, yeah. isn't it, yeah. for like an album? <laughs> <laughs> like it's, you know, I didn't see too many albums going that uh, blunt in terms of the cover. I just imagine kids bringing that home to their parents and those that understood, right? You know, I mm-hmm. You got to figure that. That's is that a slang word from like the '60s and '70s?
1: I'm sure it's yes. been like, around forever.
0: getting head. It yeah, was I think on because yeah,
3: uh, yeah. Lou Reed. Remember Lou Reed used it on yes. uh, "Take a yes. Walk on the Wild Side," and it got past yep. the the British censors didn't didn't right. they didn't know, but other people did. So
0: right. So and you know the monkeys had head as well, which I always wondered mm-hmm. if that was because it's psychedelic or because it's yeah. The monkeys had an orgy word. song. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, written by uh, our friend friend of the show Harry Nielsen. Nils- Nils- Nielsen uh, mm. wrote that album. Yeah, that's right. And sung by Davy Jones of all people. What was so that song "Puppet Show" or something? What was "Cuddly it Toy." "Cuddly, Cuddly Toy." That's mm-hmm. <laughs> it. From Pisces, Aquarius Cap or Pisces Capricorn Aquarius <laughs> and Jones Limited. Yes. So. I
3: love how that album always makes it into the show, like every eight episodes. Like yeah. Like that's yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's like a perennial, you know, uh, mention.
0: The monkeys are just a band that will continue to revisit us for a while until we get to other stuff. I guess that. Occupies our attention, but we we go long, long, long uh, on the list right here until we get to an album that I listened to, guys, because I thought we were going to do it for cool listen, hot take, only for you guys to tell me oh, we're not Cohen. going to listen to oh, it. Yeah. Leonard Cohen's songs of love and hate, and I could speak to that album. It is the most fucking depressing album <laughs> on God's green earth. I can't think. I was trying to think like what albums are more depressing than this album that I've ever listened to and you know maybe some Alice in Chains albums right maybe like The Fragile by Nine Inch Nails like what what else can I think of that's as unrelentingly depressing as that album. I don't even know if Lou Reed's Berlin was as depressing as Songs of Love and Hate was. It was just Songs of Love and Hate was basically an album where the entire time you feel like Leonard Cohen wrote it trying to talk himself out of killing himself. Like that—that that was Ouch. the lyrical content and the sound of this album. It was—it um, was not the—it was not the Leonard Cohen writing sort of like real romantic love songs, right? Of that we've covered. So, yeah, I—I'd like i'd like to recommend it but i can't it's a bleak bleak album guys Mm. so yep and then as i'm looking the rest of the way we've got the beach boys surfs up i can definitely say i enjoy that album that's the underrated period of the beach boys the early 70s in my opinion surfs up and um it's not on here but sunflower are two albums that i would absolutely recommend they're very very good thoughts on your end guys
2: that's after wild honey
0: it's after Wild Honey, yep. Okay. Wild Honey was uh sixty eight, I believe, and this is seventy one. Oh, okay. So this is like when Brian Wilson's kinda not with the band anymore and you get a lot more of Carl and Dennis uh mm. and sort of the R and B leanings. So mm. Yep. I, and we've I, got I don't know not, it. not familiar. Okay, gotcha. The Bee Gees. Uh, I'm gonna try to pronounce this Trafalgar, I'm thinking is the name of the album. T R A F A L G A R. So this is once again early I, beetle
3: I like
2: Early Trafalgar. Bee Gees trafalgar yeah pre-disco bgs
3: way pre-disco bgs hi i remember uh, i have a funny story about that i was in like a starbucks once several years Mm -hmm. ago and i was in line and they were playing uh bg they had like a a, i think it was like from the best of bgs which was an album my dad had one of the few albums that my dad had was this old old school bgs album and um the guy's like this is really good what is this i turned around i was like it's the bgs and he goes he got, like, defensive. He was, like, really, like, because he thinks of the Bee Gees as being the disco band. So yeah. he was like, really? Like, ugh, like, I can't believe I... Like, it was this face, like, I can't believe I like this. So I was like, nah, man, it's good. It's okay. It's all right. Let it, let it <laughs> out. You know, you can like it. It's all right.
2: Mind blown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, totally did, yep. It's definitely totally. a reference to the Battle of Trafalgar because the album covers a bunch of Navy ships. Look finally. at Josh, knowing his history. <laughs>
0: yeah. Josh, would you like to share... Uh, facts about the Battle of Trafalgar on Twitter, or would you just like to share them in a the future <laughs> cleaning the stacks? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe. That's Josh's history I don't podcast. Even know if that's
2: worth going cleaning the stacks. Nah, well, on. Google it. In
0: a Venn diagram, combing the stacks, Battle of tra- <laughs> History facts. Yeah, you know, audience, you know, I don't know where the overlap is. And uh, the last one, there are two Yes albums from '71 on this, Fragile, which we covered, and then uh, the Yes album itself. Mm. 1971 which my dad swears along with yes songs are the two albums that would absolutely win this podcast over to listening to yes and Hmm. i assured him that no one will be listening to those based on the feelings of my co-hosts of of yes at which point my dad staunchly says that he will find a way to convince you guys to listen to this Your so.
3: dad needs to first listen to
0: our podcast and <laughs> right. then we can he, talk. Yes, he, yes it, it's funny because he has no idea about your takes because he has not listened to the podcast ever, so it does yeah. make me laugh. It's a Takes two to tango idea. John's dad. Yep. <laughs> yep, uh, yeah, I don't know if he's that committed to you making this. This going to be a to perennial
2: him. Cold War. Just kidding, yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: so, we'll if he ever
0: does listen, I will share that with you Actually, in so, mind,
3: I, yes. I think I probably, and your dad yeah, likes Genesis. so I, more. I think he uh, more. I think he and I might might see eye to eye in certain things. So On
0: prog rock, certainly, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm, yep. yeah. mm-hmm. And and both of your somewhat disdain for hip-hop. That's probably the two areas where I you guys I don't have a disdain. I have them. a disdain for trap. Trap, okay, that's <laughs> well when did that and, and you know what that that is a perfect way to end this segment right there because i want there to be mystery as to why matt hates trap and perhaps we will revisit that in the future coming the stacks episode so if you'd like feel free to share with us why you think matt hates trap music is there a story associated with matt's hatred of trap music can you figure it out and we'll get from there <laughs> I also think that may be the first time that Josh and I became aware of the fact that Matt hates trap. Like not that I couldn't have guessed that, but I think that's the first time I've heard Matt. I've never said
3: that to you. Okay. That is
0: that directly. Yes.
3: I've definitely (laughs) said it before. I guess just not around you, but yeah. Just just Yeah. Just myself. Just myself. when I'm sitting around going, you know what? I think I hate Matt.
0: Now I'm just thinking of Matt sitting around the DJ, like "Let let the beat drop, let the beat drop, let the beat drop. And then the beat drops, and Matt is infuriated. Oh my god, so,
2: that's so funny. I
0: that's It's rare that we get Josh laughing that hard. So, like, the idea of, yeah. Drink I'll it, take in, it, listeners. I'll <laughs> take it. And you know what? It's a perfect time right now for us to go into segment one, isn't it? Because, yeah, I think so. I'm going sure to pitch to Josh right now and see if he can compose himself because. He's gonna be covering Can right here. It's the, instead of the Can Can, this time it's the Can Can Can, our third trip. Josh, the floor is yours.
2: All right. Can's future days. In the opening montage, you heard Moon Shake. And now you're gonna hear Future Days. <laughs> future days um, came out August 1973. Uh, we last talked about them in episodes 13 and 15. And we need the numbers, Josh. I was gonna. Yes, I was gonna ask you that. Were you? Yes, right now. Tell okay. me the numbers. Number
3: 94 of the 1970s. We almost didn't cover this, Josh. Um, much to your chagrin. Uh, number 10 in 1973. Number 378 of all time. It is not on Rolling Stones list.
2: Okay. This is their fourth studio album, their fifth overall and the last to feature vocalist Damo Suzuki. After their last album that we talked about, Aya Bamasi can continued to tour. And then in, in mid 1972, Michael Caroli of the band suffered a perforated perforated ulcer and almost died mm. and forcing can to stop touring and, and even stay out of the studio while he was recovering. Um, jockey Liebzit and holger zuke um, produced a, a record for a solo artist alex whoever that is and zuke released an album titled connexious five an album of montage sound pieces so go check that out um, they also started having um, some financial uh, worries at this time because they weren't touring so Sch- smith's wife ermine schmidt's wife uh, hildegard got a bank loan for the band and kept them float. With uh, now with uh, Michael Caroli recovered, they set up a sixty-date tour um, covering the UK, France, and Germany. And they um, in the spring of 1973, they returned to the studio in the summer of '73, and right as they were going to. Uh, Go into the studio. Damo Suzuki went back to Japan um, right as recording started. Now they recorded in the same space they uh, recorded in last time—that Space studios, which was that uh, converted theater in Cologne that they uh, <laughs> that they used. Yeah, and, where, uh,
3: where did this get recorded? I want to hear.
2: Yeah. In an airport. Um, <laughs> no, this is the same place, but oh, this it time, is. Okay. yeah, but this time they have um, some upgraded equipment. And uh, so they started recording. Um, Zuke was not the sound engineer at this time, instead focusing just solely on the bass, um, as well as editing and cutting after the fact. Um, they brought in some, some uh, roadies to handle the sound, sound engineering. And then Suzuki came back from Japan eventually, but most of the album was already finished and leaving little room for the vocals um, that you hear on the album. Um Sales did not match the um, previous two albums and and this is kind of their final swan song in terms of most influential albums and and I guess popularity um, that uh, Suzuki left shortly after the band finished recording left the band after finished recording. Uh, he married his girlfriend and became a jehovah 's witness and then Caroli and Schmidt took over on vocals on future albums but fewer tracks featured vocals um, at all so it's kind of they've they've fully transitioned in this album into kind of what they I think became ultimately with the ambient music Um, after this um, they released six more albums in the 70s Um, the next one was called Soon Over Babaluma And um, that continued in the ambient style as well Um, then follow-ups after that were called landed and flow motion and they were more conventional and he even had a disco single on it called I want I want more that was popular in the UK Um, and because of that popularity they went on top of the pops John mentioned top of the pops last week I Mm -hmm. I believe and um, so I thought that was a funny coincidence and then in 1977 former traffic Artists, band members, Roscoe G and Rebop Kwakuba, they joined the band. <laughs> Sounds about <laughs> right. Rebop Kwaku yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, they joined the band and provided vocals on their final three albums. Um, Zuke left the band in 77 due to dissatisfaction over the band's direction and and with his bass playing, I guess. Um, Roscoe oh. G was a, a well-known oh. bass player, and so he kind of took over for that as well.
0: Wait, so what was the direction he was hoping for that he was disillusioned with? It didn't say. Yeah,
2: they didn't say. Um, I guess, but I didn't listen to any of these later albums, so I think they kind of go all over the place. Like, did
0: he want them to write three-minute pop songs? Was that what he was hoping for? Because I feel like there's a lot of space in art rock and experimental
2: rock to kind of bunch of.
0: Zuke's got a bunch of solo albums, so
3: you can go check them out, John.
2: Yeah, he. I think i just laughing. Maybe I think he of the was idea even that, yeah. more avant garde than the rest of the band. I don't know. Um, I can only speculate. Um, perhaps,
0: <laughs> perhaps we do more melody. Perhaps we do yeah. more rhythm. Yeah. So I just yeah.
2: The band went their separate ways after the album, uh, self titled album in 1979, um, and they performed. The members performed se- as session musicians for other artists at that time um, and, and later on in the decades. They reunited in 86 to record another album um, released in 89 titled Right Time. And then that was their last official release as a band. They reunited in 91 and 99 for some single tracks on other projects, um, including a movie by Vim Vendors. and. That's about it. Karoli uh, died of cancer on November seventeenth, two thousand one. Jackie Liebsit died of pneumonia on January twenty second, two thousand seventeen. And Holger Zuke died of natural causes on um, no, September fifth, twenty seventeen. And Erman Schmidt is the sole surviving member of the original lineup at age eighty four. So that's kind of the history since. Um, This is the last album we're talking about, and we've only got four tracks on this album, so let's start with Matt. What did you think of Future Days?
3: yeah i i liked it and i i'm starting to think that can is my favorite artist that we've covered in this entire podcast that i oh. had no idea about before Like okay. uh, overall because i yeah. i know like the like i would say the i i think the pretty things album i still always go back that to that is like maybe my favorite surprise album uh but we only covered one pretty things record and i don't know anything right. else by them but um i really like can it's such a unique listen it's uh, um you know, I think the only thing I didn't like about them was the second half of Tago Mago, which mm-hmm. I kind of don't really count because it's not—it's just—it's I don't know—it's—it's it's just noises that they were making. They weren't even trying to make music. It was just sound effects and trying to experiment with stuff, which whatever you know but the music when they're doing music i like it and i see the you know this is we've talked about this before but this is certainly laying the groundwork for a lot of indie rock and you know ex- experimental stuff that you know there's radiohead in here one of my favorite bands um love the percussion against up front moonshine or moonshake what a freaking that like that yeah that's, that's like one of their song, best really yeah that is a great yeah. that that is just a very danceable very catchy kind of song um but uh uh future days really like that song as well um you know th- this this grew on me a little bit i listened to a couple times and the more i listened to it the more i liked it bell air i found found kind of an interesting listen in that um there were times where i was really into it and other times where i was like okay it's just there but it it, it kind of wavered back and forth really um and and i felt like it, maybe it had to do with the mood that i was in or you know how I was listening to it, I think I probably I think the times that I liked it more, I was listening to it on a headset, um, and I think that that was just mm-hmm. i don 't know I was just putting it directly to my brain, and that maybe you know made it like maybe like it a little bit more but it 's also uh, a twenty
2: minute long song too so it is
3: also a twenty minute long yeah. song yes um, i, I don 't know if it needs to be twenty minute lo- twenty <laughs> minutes long, but it's it 's fine you know what I, I sometimes with these longer songs, I can kind of. I, I, I don't mind it if it's something that, you know, that's got some aspects of it that I like, I not you know, you can continue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, they're interesting because they are certainly not, obviously they're not traditional, you know, uh, music. It's not that, you know, I, like I said, I, I like a lot of melody and uh, you know, and stuff like that. And this is not that at all, but there's just, it's just a lot of interesting sounds um, that they're doing. I love the drumming. Uh, I think that's probably my favorite part. And that's, that, that's, That's usually up front, you know, that's usually something that you're kind of really hearing and the stuff that you're hearing in the background, the more the guitar parts or the vocals, it's really way in the background, you know, so um, but but they still provide interesting elements to it. Like on future days, there's that cool little guitar part that they're plucking that a little bit. It's kind of, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's almost like I I get like the sense of like an island kind of sound like a beach, you know, kind of thing. Like a happy, it was like a happy tone, you know, Um, because the music, music like this can get very dark, you know, it can lend itself to being very, um, you know, ominous and like, you know, either depressing or scary or haunting, stuff like that. And I, I I wouldn't say that I feel that way with the majority of the songs that they're doing, whether it's here or on other albums, Um, it's actually, it's kind of upbeat and in some cases happy, like Mm -hmm. happier, brighter sounds. Um, and uh it's just a very interesting band i don't really listen to a ton of stuff like this like f- that's foremost you know there there's elements of this in other bands but they also are couched more in melody and in traditional rock and western sounds but uh yeah i i i did can i'm I, I was i was a fan um and i you know i i yeah i liked all four of these tracks there were, i don't think i don't think there was a dud on here for me so uh it's 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 an interesting listen and i'm thumbs up on it
2: hmm. all right john what do you think well, the the most
0: interesting thing about this album is when we're listening to it because with Station to Station from Bowie, we yes. see the the beginning of the Krautrock influence on mm-hmm. Bowie very much on the first track, which we'll talk about when we get there, and certainly in the other three albums we're gonna do. But I listened to Can first in our albums this week before the re and then I I listened to each album first, and then I got Bowie later, and then I went back to Can, and but and it's just very clear. With that eno album we did and stuff how much that sound that german sort of ambient mm-hmm. sound found music sound music concrete at times uh, you could see how it influenced some of the groups that we're listening to and that's a really cool thing about doing this podcast is seeing the influence i, I know matt constantly talks about Indie rock and the influence on and, and there is some of that, right? It depends on what we're talking about with indie rock, right? Because there's some. I, that's I'm not... using
3: it like yeah, it's like an umbrella term for just kind of like yeah. you know maybe more unique or more. I don't want to say avant garde because it's not it's not full blown like avant garde, but just. You know just different you know surprises songs that are kind of taking different directions and stuff like that is, I, is kind of more what i'm talking about
0: and and certainly radiohead could be classified as in you know indie rock i guess by the mm-hmm. what i hear in this is electronic music yeah, like, yeah this that, is yeah, the beginning of way more than indie that's rock. a good point so yeah. so 80s like this is it's very interesting too because with electronic music in the 80s and 90s in particular You can go real high art, like what, you know, Trent Reznor does at times and Aphex Twin and stuff. And then you can do very mainstream stuff that became, uh, that was derivative of this, like, uh, Depeche Mode or Erasure, bands like that. Uh, But it seemed like there were elements of this that were merged with pop rock. In the '80s and '90s, all over the place. Like mm. it became poppy, it became mixed with soul. It stayed weirder at times, and it became the music concrete and stuff like that. Uh, but it really, this is where you start to see it all kind of come together because you've got Roxy Music doing the the new romantic thing. You've got sort of this sound coming out, and we haven't even gotten to Craftwork yet, guys, which is really mm. interesting because we've covered like every other big band of German rock, and we haven 't covered the one that gets mentioned most when you talk yeah. about it, so that 'll be very interesting when we do that but uh, as for the album itself it's certainly it certainly is at least a little bit more rooted in sounds that would be familiar to you if you 've been mostly listening to western rock music um, that 's not to say at all that it 's really moored to that sound uh, but there are, I guess, what you would consider to be a little bit more traditional singing, a little bit more traditional playing on this album. They have a lot of very interesting, I just think it's interesting, like Bel Air ends the album, it's almost a 20-minute clip, and then it just stops. Mm-hmm. It's There's no outro, there's no real reveal yeah. that it's going to stop, it just ends, to the point where I thought that like, I was listening to it one of, the, one of the two times I listened to it. I was listening to it actually on a phone while I was driving and in the speakers and it stopped I thought I was getting an incoming call or something which you know <laughs> yeah. when you 're listening to like this music, you always wonder, is that incoming call that I could be getting the music, or is so <laughs> there 's always that element of it too, which is kind of funny but um, i 'm not as effusive in love with this music uh, I, this music is is more interesting to me than it is enjoyable for me if that makes sense I uh-huh. am really I am really enjoying listening to this music understanding it better and applying it both to music that I know and maybe like a little bit more later but I, I'm gaining a much greater appreciation for how this was sort of reinventing a sound in the 70s um, I will say that that um, there there were a couple tracks that I like almost better than any other can stuff that we've done up to this point um i did like bel-air it's long uh but it's it's interesting um i i found the whole album guys would you say it's it's like a dreamscape almost is mm-hmm. how i would describe it it, it yeah. yeah the first two albums were harsh to listen to very yes. harsh to listen mm-hmm. to this is um this is not an easy listen but it's not a, a harsh listen it's more um I, I wouldn't certainly call it like soothing or anything but it's it's sort of like a, a hypnotic dreamscape i'd say yeah it's, you kind it's of, a very yeah.
2: relaxed sound i would say uh. well
0: it's sort of like a soundscape like if you listen to like a beach house, like mm-hmm. in modern bands there's like beach house and real estate and bands like that they have sort of a sound but this is that sound, but whereas they stay just in, in the the mellow, right? This mm-hmm. jerks you out of it all the time, but this is a much less ominous listen than the other ones
2: are. This is well, more one yeah, you can a, put on and blend into.
3: Yeah, there's an ambient, you know, feel yeah. to it for sure. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, I,
2: Yeah. ambient's kind of the key word for the band at this point and going forward in the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Atmospheric would be another word that yep. I would use, I think yep. is, is a good one for those that haven't done it, but- Chill wave. I, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but it's it's um it's very interesting because it's sort of that abandonment of western rock traditions mm. that kraut rock always sounds like to me but but also in this one you do have elements of cla- like I I more and more as I listen to this guys I think of it like classical music and to some extent jazz too. And that it's it's definitely rooted in a musical tradition but it's not necessarily rooted in a rock and roll R&B tradition. Mm and that's where i go and go well what's this tradition and jazz is harder to tie it to because jazz is in some ways rooted to a western tradition it's western music right but, but y- classical i think is what i would say it's yeah it's this similar to this that. um i would say spray in particular you say jazz and that's a guy i forgot that
3: um i i was thinking of um like miles davis fusion stuff like in a silent mm-hmm. way i thought i thought that there were sounds in there obviously there's no trumpet but like there wasn't a ton of trumpet in the silent way either. There was a lot of that, you know, the keyboards and the bass and stuff like that. But um, I, I, I was hearing elements
0: of that as well. So I definitely heard the jazz there too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I would say thumbs in the middle for me, but I'm very glad I listened to this and very glad in general that I've expanded my horizons by doing the deep dives into, um, whether it be New or Faust or Can, um, the groups making this type of music. Mm. it's been a real interesting journey and it's mm. been a very, it's made me a a more well-rounded, better listener of music to have dug into this a little bit. So, but Josh, what do you think?
2: Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, Zuke is quoted as saying that Bel Air showed can in a state of being an electric symphony group, performing a peaceful, though sometimes dramatic mm. landscape painting, unquote. So wow. That sounds I mean, like what I just said. Yeah. It, yeah. Wow, no, I, I have to bring that up because that kind of, mirrors what you said
0: well i guess um, am i going to become a jehovah's witness <laughs> uh like at some <laughs> no, point okay. with siding. just the. the vocalist. Well, not, okay okay the, yeah the vocalist. Okay, good, um sorry.
2: yeah i i think it's kind of remarkable that that the kind of transition that they've made from where we started with tago mago because that was such an abrasive album um, mm-hmm. especially on the back half. And they've, I think they really, based on what I read, this is kind of what they ultimately wanted to do or like to do is create this ambient music. And that's kind of what their legacy is, is not only the ambient music, which I hear a lot of... On you know, this album, I hear a lot of, like, dance music and then, like, mm-hmm. electronic music, too. And that's yep. their other legacy. Um, I heard a lot of, like, LCD sound system on this. Mm-hmm. And I could easily see adding certain things to this to the tracks on this and it could be coming a dance album easily um, yeah it's
0: like a skeleton isn't it and you could take it and you mm-hmm. can make lcd sound system you could take it and you can make depeche mode you could take it and make nine inch nails you yeah. see it, it, they all went different
2: directions right so yeah yeah there's you you get into you get lulled into a groove on this album a little bit um and i i really like moonshake that's kind of a great short little pop song that they insert but Future Days and Spray and and then Bel Air all have this kind of lilting, beachy sound that Matt said. I wrote that down too. Um, it's gentle. Mm-hmm. There's um, and then it's. I think Spray has kind of like an African beat to it too. There's there's some elements of world music that they're incorporating. I feel like, in, into this and, and and then they even have wave sounds in Bel Air at the beginning. So I think that plays into the kind of. Uh, back-and-forth quality that this this ambient music brings um, to the sound i like the album i didn't love it i think i liked uh, a Bamasi more but i appreciate it and i and like you john and matt i like uh i'm glad that we're listening to the kraut rock it's it's different than what i assumed it would be it's not as abrasive as i assumed it would be um or harsh and yeah and i appreciate Seeing the foundations for for all of this other stuff that comes down the road. So yeah, this is good. I wouldn't. Can is a band that I will appreciate hearing again, but I don't really have any desire to keep listening to their albums that come after this. I, I feel like I kind of, with these three albums, got a handle. I feel like it's representative of who they were as a band, mm. um, and, and and their progression. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Matt will listen to more and say, "Oh, it's like way different." <laughs> yeah, I, it's it, it's interesting. Like I,
3: I, don't know if I don't know if I have like a strong desire to go listen to a bunch more. I just I really enjoyed this. I was just taken by surprise um, when we first listened to "Tago Mago." I remember I remember how surprised I was right off the bat from the first track because mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be more of like a. I was expecting more of like a, a trout mask replica kind of just like, like really noisy, yeah, just like very <laughs> kind of like experimental. I mean, you guys have both said that, you know, that 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 those other albums were harsher or um, you know, like a harsher listen. Yeah. And I don't. My memory doesn't serve. My, my memory is not telling me. Oh, that was a harsh listen. You know, there was still there was a lot of. Uh, it was I maybe maybe it was just I was expecting it to be a really harsh listen, but it wasn't. I found it found it pretty you know, mm-hmm. I, I enjoyable, like right off the bat. So, um, I, I would agree. I think that this is, this is more of a mellow kind of like ethereal, you know, uh, uh setting to it. Uh, but I still don't think that those I wouldn't say that those other albums were like this abrasive, harsh. I don't, I don't know if that I don't know if those are words that I would that I would use. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I yeah, I just liked. I, I just think it's interesting. I, I, and again, I don't know how if I'm going to listen to this a ton more times like, in. A, but here and there. Yeah, sure. This is this is good stuff, man. And and you're right, John, that's electronic is a much better way of putting it because. Um, I, I, that it 's interestingly enough it didn't that that word didn 't come up in my mind like in thinking about all those eighties bands and stuff like that, you know in the moments of listening but you 're absolutely right i mean that 's really what this is kind of you know um laying the groundwork for helping to create so um i I was looking looking more at the beats and kind of like the off beats and just you know like random notes here and there and just kind of you know just the off 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 putting kind of not off putting but like the um the offbeat nature of things uh more so but you're right electronic is a good way to say it as well
2: yeah i think the final or the final takeaway i want to leave for can is is their legacy they're a foundational part of of krautrock and early pioneers of electronic music and ambient music and they've influenced many artists that we've talked about um also they seem to get a lot of uh, bands to name uh, their bands after. There's a band called Mooney Suzuki that's named after two members of Cannes. Um, we talked about Spoon, one of my favorite bands, and how they were influenced by them. Um, there's a British rock band in the 90s called Moonshake, named after this this uh, track. And then, you know, the early pioneers of, of ambient music along with Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream. I don't know if we'll talk about Tangerine Dream, but they are I hear them. They've been in mm. so many movies and music. Um, uh, they had the scores uh, that they I had
3: the theme heard. song for the '80s TV show Street Hawk. I don't know if you ever <laughs> remember seeing that, but that was, yeah, wow. Can't uh, say uh, I had. Uh, and you know who was in Street Hawk was the guy from Murphy Brown. Was Murphy Brown's friend Frank? He was a he was in one of the actors in Street Hawk.
1: So <laughs> wow. yeah,
2: yep. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Not the first thing I would think of for Tangerine Dream, but <laughs> that's. That's why Don't Matt and I are different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's Can. Can and a Can. Can in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like we're we're all appreciative and generally positive on Can as a whole. And so check check them out and listen to those albums.
1: Yep,
0: I'm going to be covering sort of the evolution of this type of <laughs> yeah. sound because we're going to jump from '73. Where the Can album is to uh, David Bowie, Station to Station, from January 23rd, 1976. Uh, In the opener, you heard Golden Years, and now we're going to hear a clip from TVC 15. matt run the numbers for us before i get into this very interesting bio Mm.
3: yes number 32 in the 1970s number two in the year of 1976 123 overall and number 52 in rolling stone's list um and this is actually bowie's fourth highest rated out ranked album on best ever albums but his second highest ranked album
0: on uh rolling stone okay I know earlier I believe it was Matt. We asked this question and we said, is it possible to listen to David Bowie albums without knowing his personas in the 70s? Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that you said yes. It was sort of irrelevant to you what his personas were. Right. Am I correct about that? Now Josh, where did you stand? Said, yeah. Where did you stand on that one?
2: Oh, I think I was um somewhere in the middle, leaning towards I think you can appreciate it just the music alone. Gotcha. And I think maybe we, we didn't get you in there because I think it was just me.
0: Was it, it I think Josh, I I remember Josh on, on my side. Yeah. Well, this is this is the real test of that, guys. And it's going to be the real test for you, Matt, because so much of this album is informed by the character of the Thin White Duke, which was David Bowie's persona at this point in time. Yeah, he references so, him
2: in the song, too. It starts, he yeah. starts
0: off and references him in Station to Station, laying the foundation that that's who the narrator is on this album. So let's take a trip back a little bit, because we did miss three albums along the way. So we... When we last left Bowie, we were in the Ziggy Stardust period because we'd done Aladdin Zine and he still was at the Aladdin scene character, but it was really Ziggy Stardust for all intents and purposes. Right. So Bowie, Bowie does a cover album, and, and you guys can feel free to jump in on this. I did this listen is, to
2: all those in between. I was
0: going to ask you, like, did you guys? Because I did this week too, Josh, because I I wanted to get a feel for the transition. Matt, did you happen to listen to any of them or no? I did not. Okay, no worries. So at, at Pin Ups, it's a cover album, so there's really no persona at that point. Now, he then does Diamond Dogs, at which point he's moved to a character by the name of Halloween Jack, which is still... He's retired Ziggy Stardust. He hasn't really developed a new character yet. It's still the orange hair, the Halloween, but that's the Diamond Dogs character. He then creates the concept of Plastic Soul, a term he has for soul music, especially what he considers Philadelphia soul music, but in a more hollow, hence the plastic part of it, plastic soul sound. And that is the sound that's on Young Americans. Now in Young Americans, uh, David Bowie is not the Thin White Duke at this point, but he, in the pressers for it, he begins field testing the persona that would become the Thin White Duke. Mm -hmm. Okay, and josh you did listen to that you can probably see that young americans is where he's taking the template of the sound and mm-hmm. it expand, it's expanded on here or, or tweaked i guess would would yep. that be a fair thing okay gotcha i think so yep. yeah so yeah so this is in many ways a continuation of the sound on young americans um the thin white duke character i kind of have to go you have to remember that bowie is at his heart a performance artist right we've talked about he's been a mime he wrote stuff he created ziggy stardust as a way to break through so it's kind of hard when you listen to this album to not try to understand what he was going for so here's a little bit of what what bowie was going for with the thin white duke uh it first uh, the character first showed up in 1975 when he was doing press for Young Americans, as I mentioned. Uh, and he would continue the character in ni- uh, throughout 1976 until Bowie, who was living in Los Angeles, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he eventually would move to Berlin, and that's when he would retire the character. Um, the character, Josh, you'll like this, was based on Thomas Jerome Newton, which is the humanoid alien that David Bowie played in the 1976 film, The Man Who Fell to Earth which oh, we've right. referenced before.
2: And that's, ty- that's the cover of the album, too, it's, I believe. It's
0: basically it, the, it's him in the Thin White Duke mm-hmm. character. But, and here's where it's interesting, Josh, the original plan instead of this album was to do a soundtrack for that movie. Mm, but okay. Bowie, interestingly enough, had some writer's block, creative stifling, which is funny knowing how prolific Bowie's been throughout the 70s. But he did not end up doing that soundtrack he actually in an interesting thing he actually farmed it off to john phillips of the mamas and the papas who was the person who did the score for that album Hmm. so instead of that he does this album station to station and the character that you see david bowie on there is the thin white duke but it's also in many ways similar to thomas jerome newton so now the thin white duke was a character instead of bowie's orange hair and Flamboyant outfits, this is someone dressed in a very british way a a waistcoat, trousers, a white shirt, sort of unbuttoned um, he 's very pale, his hair is blonde, during cut usually with a cigarette and stuff along the way, almost kind of like a like a lounge singery poet type of character would be how i 'd describe it, and part of this persona that Bowie develops is that he fashions him as a fat like a fascist type of character like very aryan he says it oftentimes and that actually caused a lot of drama because during this time Bowie inhabits the character and has a couple different instances where he sort of says that you know Hitler was i think the quote was that you know Hitler was like the Mick Jagger of his time you know in terms of the ability to move a crowd which you know <laughs> went over like a lead brick there 's a thing where he supposedly is uh salute like Nazi saluting a train station in London. It, he said that that was not the case. A very young Gary Newman he of cars right The song here in my car he was in yeah. that and he he also says that Bowie was just waving but looked the other way but anyway, Bowie got in a lot of trouble for this, and part of the reason I think is because Bowie often refers to this period as the darkest days of his life, and he has described it yeah. as. During this time, he was subsisting on a diet of milk, red peppers, red peppers cocaine, and amphetamines. <laughs> he also had a year-long obsession with satanic, satanic symbols and Aleister Crowley. He was not sleeping for days at a time, and he even says that he can't even remember the studio sessions for this album. And Jeez. as he looks back, he, he looked at it as that he felt pretty much the entire time he was in L.A., 75 and 76 that he was in a drug-induced paranoia and depression Um, interestingly enough many of the the people who are on this album also don't remember recording this album because of their own (laughs) drug addled state um that includes the band that bowie has created that would actually be his band for the rest of the decade and that is bassist george murray drummer dennis davis and rhythm guitarist uh carlos alomar who actually joined during uh, young Americans. And Josh, if you've listened to both, you can probably hear his sound on both because the, the rhythms to are similar. Ronson uh, was... Uh, no longer a part of the spiders the spiders were retired by Bowie and so once, So was he
3: kind of like Prince like once once you're done with the revolution the spider like I now I need no, an entirely new band
0: it's it's hard with Bowie but he's always shifting and part of the shift is the sound he wants to hear and so the rhythm mm. guitarist that he wanted had to sound different than got it you know okay. Ronson was a glam rock guitarist. So yeah, the okay. Amrock didn't fit with this sound they still, at all. They
3: still got along and all that. It was just, I need to move
0: on to I different. think it's one of those things. Remember, he fired him after the man who sold the world. Then he came okay. back. So I think it's creative tension. But yeah. um, this album was produced by Harry Maslin uh, and did not include uh, Tony Visconti, who had fallen out of the fold for a while. pretty much the exact period that we didn't cover Bowie. And now he's back in, but he's not formally... Um, Uh, producing this album. So that's a little bit of the the character. You have to kind of know the Thin White Duke character, that detached, icy, neo-fascist character is the headspace that Bowie is in. And you have to also realize that Bowie is recording this at what he considers to be sort of the nadir of his life. Um, So much of this, if you remember, Bowie had a love for America. by this point, LA was not agreeing with him, and he basically has to flee it to get clean. And that is why the next three albums would be called the Berlin trilogy because he he decamps over to Berlin, where he works with Brian Eno, and um, you know Iggy Pop joins them. Interestingly enough, Iggy Pop on the Isolar tour, which is the tour for this, Iggy Pop was the invited guest of David Bowie on mm. this entire tour, so he's actually there for the entire. Um, Tour. performing
2: or, or no just, just as a oh. as a companion
0: for okay. bowie the entire time hmm. um, Drug buddy this <laughs> yeah. i think i think iggy pop was in the process of kicking drugs at this point because well, if you remember he was hospitalized and i think I, I i can't say for sure he's clean or if it didn't come totally later i know that when he's in berlin with bowie They're both clean because that was a big part of the impetus of them going there. Maybe uh, he was Bowie's sponsor here. I think a lot of the reason why, well, Bowie was, I mean, yeah, it's it's it's. There's a lot. There's a lot yeah. of bio on this, and and Bowie was not not in a good place when he was making yeah. this album, and it says you can hear it throughout. Like it must be a very odd thing to make an album when you're in that headspace, and then listen to it later. Uh, a couple other things about this. This was along with the band being similar for the next five albums. So was the uh, the way the album was recorded. Um, here's how his next five, this album and the next five were recorded. The backing tracks were laid down by the band first. And then the sax keyboard and lead guitar were laid down either by session players or Bowie himself. It was then overdubbed. The lead vocals were then recorded, and then it was finished with production tricks. So for this album, as well as the Berlin Trilogy, and then um, his last album in the uh, Scary Monsters, I think, was the the last one outside of that in 1980. That's how it was done. Um, there's a lot of very interesting... Um, uh, facts about this album. Just to, off the bat, that Bowie wrote the song Golden Years. He, he won it for Elvis Presley, who actually rejected it. Um, this is right around the time of Elvis passing away, mm-hmm. so uh, he offered that there. Um, the song Stay was recorded to sound like a sexual outing gone wrong that was basically a, a coke frenzy where there's a sexual conquest and then the aftermath. That was the, the idea of what Stay was supposed to sound. Uh, Like, Word on a Wing was about Christianity. Um, There is a Nina Simone cover on this album. Um, The last track, uh, Wild is the Wind, right? You know, is the last track there, and we've covered that album. So that was an interesting thing. Uh, TVC15 was described by uh, Bowie as being about Iggy Pop's girlfriend being eaten by a TV set. (laughs) So there's what? a lot of different and station to station, by the way, despite having train sounds, Bowie says that it's actually about the stations of the cross and that the train sounds were simply something thrown in to kind of take you off of it. Bowie says this album was largely influenced by
2: cocaine, the, the well, <laughs> the, the,
0: the depression, the depression from the cocaine, but also an obsession with the occult, Aleister Crowley in particular, Christianity and mysticism. Uh, which does come across in the lyrics, if you listen to the lyrics quite a bit on this album. Uh, Bowie also says that this represents kind of what he was trying to go for for a very long time, which is Hmm. a desire to synthesize R&B music, particularly American R&B music, and electronic music. And so this is where he felt that he really was doing that for the first time. Uh, He also recorded a version of Bruce Springsteen's It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, which is funny. Like if Hmm. you know right there, and it actually shows up in the 1989 Sound and Vision box set if you want to listen to it. So Hmm. you can seek that out. This album, amazingly enough, was David Bowie's highest charting album in the United States up until that point. It got to number five. It also got to number five in the UK. After this, a bunch of Bowie albums in the UK would hit number one, but Bowie would still not have an album over number five until 2013's The Next Day, which debuted at number two. So this is actually, of all the Bowie 70s albums, this is the one that climbed the highest on the American charts. And the final thing that I found is a very interesting thing taken from Wikipedia, but synopsizing some other articles I've found, the stories... um, There were a variety of interviews that Bowie gave during this time, including some famous ones with Rolling Stone and Playboy. Um, At this time, Bowie was described as living in a house full of ancient Egyptian artifacts, burning black candles, seeing visions of bodies falling past his window, imagining having his semen stolen by witches, receiving secret messages from the Rolling Stones, and living in morbid fear of the return of Aleister Crowley especially when communicating with Jimmy Page, who was also someone who believed in that happening. And Bowie would later say, when he looks back on this period, about Los Angeles, the fucking place should be wiped off the face (laughs) of the earth. So there you go. That is the background in terms of the making of this. We will, in the review, I'm sure, talk about the music, because this is also very much – an amalgamation of the past the present and the future right in terms of what it is mm-hmm. we started with Matt last time Josh thoughts on station to station
2: well it's interesting you describing the thin white Duke character because that's very much how the character in man who fell to earth is too. KC mm-hmm. detached and I wonder like what effect playing that character had on him and, he said it was like, horrible it basically yeah, turned in, it's
0: well if you remember he said ziggy stardust was horror on, yeah. on all his characters were but when you're playing a neo-fascist cold-hearted you know air, uh, martian you know,
2: in the movie uh, but yeah
0: he said he was trying to be a romantic but he had no soul was mm-hmm. how he's and and clearly substance addled as well you know it's like he's like a david lynch character in yeah. many ways that the thin white dude but continue
2: so yeah, that that's interesting. Um this album is very interesting also and I do like it. I don't like it as much as some of the other albums that he did, but it's it is kind of it does feel like weirdly almost transitional. I think the overall feeling I had with it is it also kind of sounds like a dance album or like a proto dance album. A lot of the tracks end with you know a minute or more of just the music and there's no vocals and they have like a steady beat to them and i feel like that that happens over and over with station to station and and uh in golden years and and stay they just they just kind of have these beats that keep going that make you want to uh, dance or move to them and despite all of the kind of negativity and the the cocaine-fueled You know, psychosis or whatever—the fact that he doesn't remember this album—it still seems to me like a pretty upbeat album. Maybe not in lyrical tone, but in in terms of songs and um, and even the slow songs like "Word on a Wing," they they just kind of still have this um, captivating quality to them and. And I liked it as a result. I thought TVC fifteen was a song that got stuck in my head a lot, and is not one I ever heard before. I guess the most popular song on this would be Golden Years, probably. Um, and well, and definitely. I, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, and I like Station to Station a lot. I know I don't like long songs, and I'm a little hypocritical, but I like how the song transitions from like this kind of ambient music into to like a dance dance song, and it, it really worked for me. Yeah, I mean, Bowie's one of those guys that or artists that he more than anyone seems to transition to different these different aspects and different sounds almost seamlessly. Um <laughs> when when you're hearing the music, maybe not in the background, but but um, yeah, this album is it, it, and also kind of like what we were talking about with the with the Berlin uh Lou Reed Berlin record. I feel like this album is worth re-listening to and has kind of some some depths to it that I haven't picked up on yet. So yeah, this is a thumbs up for me for sure.
3: Matt, thoughts? I love this album. This is uh this is second to uh Ziggy Stardust easily for me. This was fantastic. Um it's and it's very it's it's definitely interesting. Josh is absolutely. It's, it's very. It's a, It's like a dance record in a lot of places. Disco almost. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm getting disco. Oh, there's, like, definitely disco. Yeah. there's definitely disco. There's definitely disco. You know, um and uh and just very very, uh, yeah. I mean, you're in. You're asking about all the persona and stuff like that. I mean, I think that that certainly adds a lot of context, and I think it's interesting. And um, you know, I know we mentioned before we started recording. I just I just finished the 1971 documentary, and they were talking about Bowie. You know one of the things i said in the last episode was about how he like his real genius was that morphing and really like that wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't so much in in him as a a musician um it was just about the overall aura and the direction and the different things that he did and how he pushed the culture and, and a lot of that was just based on theatrics and his his identity and, and stage stuff and whatever so i think all of that certainly adds to it um but i again when i was listening to this i'm just listening at for the music um and it's it's very strong it's very strong um he i love his voice he's getting that he's getting a lot of good variety going on Mm, with his voice mm -hmm. and he does that kind of like the deep the deeper bowie vocals like the more it's very dramatic in a lot of places yeah which which, he um, holds
2: the 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 notes or whatever yeah, Same and he voice. just
3: and he and he just does so many different styles with his voice. You know, there's so many different. There's the personas are in his in in, in the tone of his voice. I mm-hmm. I, I I feel like, um, station station the opening very cool. I love that They're that bass, and that's where you're. I, I can see what you're saying now about the the kraut rock a little bit more you know that's kind of a little bit more in that vein and then it just goes into like a full-blown totally different song it's like this danceable very fun song um always new golden years and tvc one five from the uh the greatest hits album that i had so that those are very familiar and i've i've always liked both of those very full um fun songs uh, I gotta say Word on a Wing was is a really good song too and I, I, I'm just as I'm looking at this Wikipedia page I gotta give props to Sherry cause she at one point when she first heard it she goes this sounds like a Bruce Springsteen type song with the piano and stuff. And mm. wouldn't I know it, I'm looking at this, who's playing piano? Roy Batan from the E Street Band is playing <laughs> bata- piano on this album. So oh, I, props to her for Because as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. And then I'm, as I was listening, I was like, yeah, it kind of does have a little bit of a Springsteen-esque sound to it. And, and sure enough, there's Roy playing on the piano. So... Um, I thought the closer wild as the wind is, was a phenomenal song. That was so great. Such a great way to end it. I totally forgot that that was on the Nina Simone album. Um, I think I knew How? it was a cover.
0: How did you not know that was the Nina Simone Cause it was, song? because we
3: listened to, it was a one, it was a cold listen. I only yeah, listened to uh, it once. I, it I kind so of forgot ago. too.
2: I went and, Oh yeah, wow. Back okay. and listened to if, the if song. If that compared. song
3: would have been on uh, pastel blues, I'm sure I would. Cause I listened to that a ton of times hmm. and that's, you know, but, okay. um, and um, I bet you if I would go back, it would it would sound different because I remember not being so into that that record. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, Nina Simone's version has got to be much different than this. It um, is. It you is know, different. so so but I I love the Bowie version. Um, I just I it's it's. The, the, not just his voice; he's got a strong vocal performance. But I really like the production and the tone of the of the, of the instruments that are in the background. I just think that it was it's such a powerful song and just a great way to end the record. Um, so yeah, certainly not a weak track on here. Like the like the upbeat nature of of the you know danceable stuff. I love his voice. Um, I think the production's really strong, and uh, it's. Uh, yeah, this is it's it's a lot of Bowie that I wasn't familiar with, um, and it is interesting going through this to see oh what songs are on which albums, you know? Because yeah. I know I know a lot of Bowie stuff throughout the years, but dribs and drabs, like a like a song or two from each album, pretty much, with the exception of um, I I knew a lot of the songs from Ziggy Stardust, but as we're going through this, it's you know there's two songs that I know usually. And then a bunch of stuff I don't know. And mm-hmm. uh and, and and this is great. I definitely like this better than Hunky Dory, um, which I think still is my least favorite Bowie album that we've covered, even though it's got like two of the strongest tracks he's ever done. You know, it's got Starman and Life on Mars or not Starman on Life on Mars and uh uh what is it, Changes or whatever I, mm. I think might be on there. But uh but yeah, very very much into this. It's it's um I'm sorry that he was going through such a rough time but it made some made an awesome album so uh you know um i'm not, I'm not saying the ends justified the means but um i'm, I'm glad that we have this because uh it's it was it's 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 great yeah thumbs you up
2: have, you have to hear is uh across the universe on the previous album young americans tell me what you think about that is it is it good or is it <laughs> I, I didn't like it but okay it's, it's interesting yeah so what about um, you john yeah.
0: yeah, I'm going to kind of jump in for this one because before I even knew formally about his personas, and you know, I knew his music shape-shifting and things along those ways, I think, you know how you connect with an artist intuitively at times? Mm-hmm. They sort of speak, Bowie is that for me, and this is where Bowie, be- I love this album, I love this period of David Bowie, this and later, this is where to me Bowie, the more so than even, in my opinion, from a musical standpoint and as an interesting art character, I think that this is a considerably more interesting Bowie than even Ziggy Stardust is. Ziggy Stardust is very broad. Um, some of it was shock value, you know, the, the, and- the androgynous right. nature. Yeah. and But it's still, the music is awesome to listen to, but he's not exactly reinventing the wheel either. He's just taking the T-Rex sound and slowly bending it. Uh, this is where Bowie manages to merge the stuff he liked for that, that backwards looking soul that he loves mixed with small elements of the glam rock. He presages disco coming and kind of shows you how disco could be built in. He's taking the electron, the electronic and the kraut rock that we were hearing and he's moving it to the next level that it's going to be. And he's uh, becoming a, a, artist in the ambient field that's both creating a new sound as opposed to just chasing the trend Uh um and i it is before i even knew what bowie was when i listened to his albums i i knew before i even heard of it that a part of bowie was the shape-shifting because that's why it's so it's impossible for me to think of listening to a david bowie greatest hits because it defeats the whole concept of what david bowie is to listen greatest i get it but like it's just I can't even fathom not listening to David Bowie as albums because it's impossible to listen to David Bowie and not see this evolution of him through these different characters and and different sounds. And that to me is what this is. This is David Bowie taking a greatest hits and a future look of all of the sounds of the 70s. And I love how each track, I love how he starts station to station with the found music, kraut rock, and then modernizes it the last part to be almost the traditional pop song. But it's kind of like the best song that a kraut rock band could write for the last Mm -hmm. five Mm -hmm. minutes in terms of fusing the weird with the accessible. Golden Years is so funky that he could play it on Soul Train. That's, he literally played that song on Soul Train. It's an incredibly funky song that that just about any funk act could have done. Then he goes to "Word on a Wing," which is this very experimental track that um, I'm trying to even think about how I would like describe "Word on a Wing," like the sound of it, because it's it's dipping into a lot of different stuff. Did you hear um, the spring
3: scene on there? Because that's it's
0: cause a, with the a piano, a little. Yeah. I, I heard it's a lot about like religion and fit which is something that david bowie doesn't really talk about a lot Mm -hmm. and i know that in reading about the song it's it's part of his like it's part of he became obsessed with he started wearing a crucifix and he started becoming obsessed with thinking about god and the afterlife and the different versions of the after and you can hear it in that song it's a very uneasy song lyrically um it's it unnerves me that song it's um,
2: kind of, it reminded me a little of leonard cohen too just in kind of yeah the, that's a good the point. piano and and the kind of the strip it's a little stripped down in my opinion
0: yeah it's just it's a very unnerving song i can't really describe why tvc 15 has not psychedelic in like 60 psychedelic but it's a it's clearly influenced by drugs and the story of it is drugs and you can tell that immediately there's there's a little bit of the disco that would stay through the stay song that's Mm -hmm. afterwards stay would fuse that disco with a huge funk guitar uh that was almost like cheat, you know chic you know like good times like guitar like that disco funk sound that's what stay is but tvc 15 is really experimental and then he does this very played it straight cover at the end of wild is the wind which before i even saw the song i'm like oh that's the nina simone song oh that's very interesting because i know Bowie at this point was delving into covers. I didn't know what he was going to cover on this, but I figured he might. And so I kept listening to see when it was going to show up and boom, there it hit. But it's very out of place, but in a good way in terms mm-hmm. of the rest of the sound of this album. It's almost a throwback to that Young Americans album, staying with that plastic soul. But this is that plastic soul. It's a very... it it draw. Remember they said with Sly and the Family Stone that it's, um, it's like an awful thing about taking drugs, but it's seductive as well, and you almost hate you're almost scared of the fact that the sound is so seductive because you know how dark it is. That's mm-hmm. how this album sounds to me. It's like I wouldn't have even had to know that Bowie was in a dark place to hear this album because there's elements of it. Mm-hmm. Th- even even Golden Years, as much as a danceable upbeat yeah. song, it's a very une it's I describe it as like going to a disco and being like out of your mind a little bit. Um, in a way where you're both dancing like crazy, but also people look at you and kind of are like, are you okay? Like, that's the vibe. It's like, you know, very much like a bendy guitar, like, you know, where it's in the back. Cool riff, but you never... It's it's not a happy album, but it's a very intriguing album. It's mm-hmm. We'll do some other ones I love almost as much as this one, but this is definitely my favorite Bowie album we've covered so far. And this is the first one where it's like, this is where the genius of the, the persona, the sound, and the interest, the transcendent you know, per, persona of Bowie is here. So really, really strong recommendation for me. I love this album. It's not going to be for everybody. You have to like your music a little bit more complex. With that being said, it's not so complex like a lot of the experimental music we do where it could drive you off because it's too strange. He still, even when he's getting dark or experimental, has an amazing ability to make it accessible without compromising and that's a little bit of what is amazing about bowie too
3: yeah i don't i don't think that this is much of a stretch for for would be much of a stretch for most people i just think that there's so much in here that just on first listen is just super catchy and 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 upbeat and danceable like it is you know so i i don't even know i mean it is there's complex complexity here but i don't think it's in any way off-putting for for most people um
0: and, and I mean, make no mistake about it, the, the legacy of, of Bowie as a musician is much more this Bowie than Ziggy Stardust Bowie. I know the Ziggy Stardust Bowie gets a lot of the press, but when you hear musicians talk about Bowie and do, we're beginning the period now that's by far the most influential part of ooh. David Bowie, in my opinion. It's it's mm-hmm. this, when you hear artists talk about the Bowie they love, Station to Station, Low, Heroes... Lodger, that's the Bowie that comes up all the time. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people that didn't love Ziggy Stardust and Hunky Dory and Aladdin Sane, but you don't hear those dropped as, oh, once I heard that, I. this is the period where people are like, oh, hmm. yeah, for sure. Do you,
2: do you feel like this is kind of like, you said this is what he was reaching for on this album, this fusion of R&B. Do you think these later Berlin albums are kind of like the peak maturation as an artist or what he was I, striving I wanna, for in general versus like the earlier glam period
0: i want to save that discussion for when we talk about those albums and the evolution there i also want to save it for after we listen to Craftwork and a little bit more eno because mm-hmm. i think those are going to be real important reference points for us to fully know and also we're going to cover the Iggy pop album that he did there um, and we're going to do Roxy Music and just a lot of stuff to presage this, because there's a romanticism in this album, but it's it's romantic. It's romantic. Al- it's both like almost sociopathic in sound, but also romantic, which is such that's the plastic soul. Right. Or the neo-romanticism. you, you Neo-romanticism kind of had its moment at the beginning of the 80s with a lot of the British bands, right? That you'd hear mm. as the original One Hit Wonders, that neo-romantic sound. It it got mainstream with Duran Duran, but you also had like, you know, Flock of Seagulls and, um, you know, orchest- orchestral maneuvers in the du- There are all these bands like that, right? And, but those were more unabashed romanticism. This is like a very cold romanticism. Like I wanna be romantic, but I can't be romantic. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm sorry I'm rambling a little bit but I this album is as much about art as it is about music for me it's a real, no, I, it's I, a real I, I, true I, art rock music and I know what you're saying Matt about the sounds and we can talk about the sounds because there's a lot it's a great musical album but yeah. it's impossible for me to talk about like this album as not art as opposed to because it is it's a, it's a it's a piece that's designed to be experienced with all of what he is
3: no i get that and there's definitely like this is a different feel from the other records for sure and that you could always i mean even though i, I didn't have a ton i don't have and still don't have a ton of bowie knowledge um it, 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 i always knew that like he's like i do different things i'm going in different directions i'm trying to trying new fields i'm trying new. i knew he did different characters and stuff and so i always knew that that stuff was out there um it just didn't it was just it always came down to me do i like what he's doing and so when i when you listen to the greatest hits album which basically starts with space oddity um odyssey and it goes through um what is it it's like it's like the early 90s like some of the electronic stuff that he did in the early 90s you know that's you're spanning you know two and a half decades uh, of, of bowie's stuff and so it's um a lot of it's just great and it's cool it's cool for me to listen to it's like oh here's the here's the uh, you know a, the Cliff's Note version of what mm-hmm. he's doing, mm-hmm. um, and you're getting a little bit of everything. But um, I get it if people are really into the persona and stuff, and they know so much about it that it's that that's what they grew up with. It's hard to detach from that. Well, but as someone I, who didn't really do that, I I don't get as attached
0: into those pers- into the personas as, well, as, as other people might. I take the Bowie biographies really seriously. You know how you are. You could watch stuff on the Beatles, right? You're fascinated by everything mm-hmm. about the Beatles, right? And I'm—I'll be very honest with you—I'm less fascinated because to me it's a lot more of like a—it's a—it's a, it's a, it's a less—I love the Beatles, but it's a less interesting narrative for me. It's like, oh, okay, that's now not, we want to India and I mean, stuff, right? Bowie. Whereas might be the most Bowie, interesting artist ever. <laughs> whereas Bowie for me is endlessly fascinating, yeah. and like I love his music, even if I didn't know his. But but to me, what makes him. You know, is is the bio? Like it's impossible to not be, in my opinion, transcended yep. by the bio. He's like, mm-hmm. he's like in. The, we've talked about the Zeitgeist. He's everywhere. He's appropriating the best trends, but not in a dodgy way. He's out in front of other ones. He's creating a few of his own as we go here. He's around ev- everybody in the '70s who's cool or ahead of their time. Bowie is yep. in there. You know, whether it be Lou Reed, Brian Eno, Iggy Pop, you know, the German crowd. I mean, he's around all these people and he's just got like impeccable taste. And so to listen to his albums is in some ways to listen to the 70s in terms of cool music, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and and that's why this stuff is fascinating to me. He's even ahead of the curve on things like disco where he's like, well, this is going to clearly be coming. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, my take there.
2: It's also a, a remarkably concise album that packs a lot, a lot into. Yeah, it. that's true. That's also fascinating. which I appreciate. <laughs> Six songs, thirty-seven yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah so,
3: at, at a third of the album is the first track, pretty
0: much. You know, yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we'll we'll talk about Bowie a lot more. So I'll probably leave it there, and we're gonna be able to continue on some of these points. But yeah, well, when we next visit Bowie, he'll be in Berlin and he'll be sobering up, so he'll be a very different version and he'll have different interests and different passions um, painting i believe is one that he takes up before the next one so yep so anyway that is station to station and matt we're going to leave it to you because i'm sure there will be plenty to talk about on this album as well
3: i should think so so we're uh covering pink floyd's dark side of the moon in the opening montage you heard a clip from money and now you're going to hear a clip from time Ten
1: years have gone behind. Told you when to run You missed the start
3: Okay, so Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon comes in at number one in the 1970s. Here we are. Best album of the decade. Best album in 1973. Number two album of all time. So just missing that number one spot. Jesus. Um, Rolling Stone calls it number 55 of all time. Just three behind Station to Station. Uh, we previously covered Pink Floyd in three other episodes. Twice in, in season one, we did Saucer Full of Secrets on episode 10 and Piper at the Gates of Dawn in episode 24. And we also covered Metal in season two, episode 11. This represents Pink Floyd's eighth studio album, which was recorded from, uh, started recording in May of 1972, re- recording finished in January of 73, and the album was released on March 1st, 1973. Uh, includes two singles, Money, uh, as well as Us and Them. And this is a concept album, Josh's favorite. We got a concept album come, uh, de- developed by Roger Waters. This is mostly his uh, idea. He is the bassist of the band. And he wanted to develop an album to take out on tour, which they did. And they actually performed this album in its entirety almost a year before it was, actually more than a year before it was released, on February yeah. 17th,
0: 1972. Um, That's very Pete townsend you know, yeah. Develop good an album point. to take and tour, mm-hmm.
3: yeah. Yep. And uh so but they would yeah, they would they would tour this album uh for a while before they actually released it. So the concepts that we're hearing uh, in this record include themes that uh Waters was going was was going through his mind, including conflict, greed, time, death, and mental illness. Uh there's a lot of people feeling that that A lot of the inspiration here still came from Sid Barrett, their original founding member who was kind of losing his mind uh, around this time, um, still continuing to lose his mind. It started in the late 60s. Uh, but the other band members were very much into this idea, even though it was Waters's main idea. They were all pretty much bought into all of the different ideas that were being covered. Uh, they were all, a lot of them were on the same page musically, and they actually said that this might be the the, 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 the most pleasant time in the band, the, where, where they were the most cohesive um, where they, that they mm-hmm. would ever be. So each side of the record is a continuous piece of music. Uh, the, the five tracks on each side, they're, they're supposed to reflect various stages of human life. Uh, Waters did write all the lyrics, but the band, all the m- members contributed to the music. Gilmore, Gilmore David Gilmore guitarist sings on most of the tracks and he harmonizes with the keyboardist Rick Wright um, he also double tracks so sometimes Gilmore is uh, is harmonizing with himself Waters does take the lead vocals in the last two tracks and um, we have a ton of fun facts with this record um, there was lots of experimenting in the studio this album is known as being what is I mean, a lot of people say that this is one of the best produced albums ever to, You know that they a lot of groundbreaking stuff um, that they were doing they um, uh, the song on the run which was it was it was an all hands on deck kind of a thing because this is before they have Computers so you can't just program something and have it loop back So what the members did was they they all kind of went to different controls and settings through a number of different electronic synthesizers and equipment and um, they would fool around with some stuff, and when they finally figured out what they were going to do, they would all basically perform live together um, with all of these different sounds. So what you're hearing on that track, um, all those noises, and the, the, the it, it's 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 purposefully done all live, uh, hmm. you know, together. So um, uh, so they not just the band members, but other people like the engineers and other people in the studio were helping out with that. For the song "Great Gig in the Sky," that's the fourth track, fourth or fifth track, fifth. Um, fifth track. Thank you, Josh. Uh, so that's where you have basically, it's a piano part that Rick Wright came up with. And um, they had this whole piece and they wanted to have um, a female singer, uh, you know, kind of do this wor- wordless uh, you know, a vocal mm-hmm. performance. So they get a woman called Claire Torrey, who was a session uh, musician and vocalist uh, from Abbey Road Studios. Uh, She was invited to come in and just improvise over this track so she goes into this she goes in the studio They play the song and she just riffs and she starts singing and that's basically what you're hearing She she actually came out of the studio and started apologizing because she felt she was going way over the top But the band actually loved what she did Um, they gave her zero direction. They just said go do what feels right and um, uh, And they were very pleased with what uh, with what she did she was paid about thirty pounds, which is uh, for, the, for her for her uh, performance and that comes to about forty four hundred pounds in two thousand and one dollars so not a whole lot um, and as you can imagine with this album selling so much and being one of the you know, biggest successes in music history. Uh, she later did sue EMI and the band for 50% of the songwriting royalties <laughs> 50% um, wow. Fifty okay. percent. the case was settled out of court. I think this is like in 2003 or something like that So many years later mm-hmm. uh, the case was settled out of court, but now when you see the track listings on the records uh, She is listed with a songwriting credit You might have heard throughout this record several voices talking and saying a variety of different things um, This this was the idea of Waters and what he would do was he would write a series of questions on uh, index cards um, some of them starting off very simple, like "What's your favorite color?" "What's your favorite food?" that type of thing, um, and oblique then they would go strategies. into other kind of oblique <laughs> strategies. I was reminded of that. Yes, Josh. Uh, and then the questions would go into more serious kind of things, like um, have, "Have you ever? When was the last time you went mad?" or something like that. So they would uh, they would show these cards to uh, various people working in the studio um, and other people that were just passing by and uh and those those basic the voices that you're hearing are uh, responses to the questions that they are being asked. Fun fact about this, Paul and Linda McCartney were actually recorded with some answers for some of these questions. However, they were not included because the band the band members felt that they were trying to be too funny. They were they're trying to be funny that just didn't work out. Um, but they did use Wings guitarist Henry McCullough who contributed the line that was used a couple of times? I don't know. I was really drunk at the time, so that guy. When you hear that li- that line, that's Ooh. from the Wings guy. So, um, the album cover is an iconic album uh, album cover. They hired the graphic design team Hypnosis, which was the same you know, team that's done their that did their previous albums album covers, and they asked them to create something that was quote smarter, neater, neater, and more classy. And they were presented with seven different options and all four members almost immediately pointed to the album cover that you see here uh today uh they were very uh, confident with the strength of water's lyrics and that they decided for the first time to actually print them on the album sleeve i'll be interested to hear if you guys feel that that was a good idea if the lyrics really were uh were worth printing on the album sleeve uh also this album was engineered by Alan Parsons, who you might have heard of from the Alan Parsons Project, mm-hmm. who also did. I didn't know this. Do you know that the Alan Parsons Project responsible for the Chicago Bulls 1990 uh, oh, yeah. song, the come out song for the yeah What's, the, was
0: what's like, the name of it? I it, always forget. I think the name it's called it. Serious. Serious. There you go. Yes, or something, something like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So he was the engineer, and he. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Waters and Gilmore kind of downplayed his his contribution to the record. In later years although Nick Mason the drummer uh, refuted that saying no he did a lot but he, he you know he, he actually probably did you know contribute a lot he had a lot of ideas here um, and uh, and he kind of felt he kind of felt that he uh, that he's, he's, he's frustrated that that they never uh, that the band made untold millions and a lot of the people that were involved in the creation of the record didn't really get their you know uh, recognition so um uh, the band wanted to call it Dark Side of the Moon, but they had to change it initially to Eclipse because they realized another band called Medicine Head <laughs> used, the, used the same title, Dark Side of the Moon, for their 1972 album. But Pink Floyd decided that they could change it back after after that album by Medicine Head was a commercial failure. Hmm. John, this album was, was uh, there was a press reception for this album held on February 27th, just a little bit before it was actually released. And it Mm -hmm. was done at the London Planetarium. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's Uh, a little bit on the news, isn't it? Right? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. So um, sales of this album were massive, to say the least. It actually only held the number one spot in the United States for one week. It did remain on the Billboard chart for uh, for initially for seven hundred and thirty-six non-consecutive weeks. But in total, as of July 2021, it's occupied that list for 958 weeks, which if that was continuous, it would be 18 and a half years, roughly. Wow. It's est- and it's estimated that 1 in 14 people in the U.S. under the age of 50 have or have mm-hmm. owned a copy. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah. In the UK, it's the seventh best-selling album of all time, and it's their highest um, highest album to never have actually hit number one. And it's estimated to have sold 45 million copies, roughly 45 million copies worldwide, and is what's known as the fifth best-selling album of all time, behind the Bodyguard soundtrack, which I is is I'm, I'm amazed at that that's yeah. like right right behind it, it right ahead of, of it. I should yeah. say, Bad Out of Hell. Uh, 45, yep, uh, Meatloaf, Back in Black, which was around 50 wow. million, and Thriller, which is like crushing everything at 67 million.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So I'll leave, you, I'll leave you from a quote with a quote from David Gilmore before uh, we get to the reactions. Uh, guitarist David Gilmore said that the combination of words uh, and music hit a peak all the music before had not had any great lyrical point to it and this one was clear and concise the cover was also right i think it's become a like a benevolent noose hanging hanging uh behind us (laughs) so and we'll talk about why he said that in the next uh next time we cover floyd but uh big album here john i can't wait to hear your take lay it on me i mean
0: let's start with the things that aren't even novel takes that you have to to describe about this album first this is the album where pink floyd to decided to become a pop band because they wrote way more streamlined songs as opposed Mm -hmm. to very experimental largely instrumental tracks they put more words in here it stands out immediately on this album compared to the other pink floyd that we've done and must have stood out to a listener at that time matt mentioned it but this may be the most clear description of what a very produced album sounds like and i think part of the reason that this album is so popular is because many of the production tricks and sounds on this album became things that were revisited over and over and over again but it's a very polished album um production wise crystal clear in its own way um there's a ton of space on this album mm-hmm. this this be, this becomes the pink floyd sound that i think is what you think of with pink floyd where there's just a ton of space to which to project whatever it is you'd like to project onto the pink floyd album where everything's you know i think the song i think it's not on this album but the thing that i wish you were here is the ultimate pink floyd space song right but uh, this I one wish you were it, here you mean Comfortably Numb? Uh, comfortably Numb, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. I, I, yeah. So we're going to get to why I don't like this album too in a little bit. So I'm. I, but the, some of it is that I have a love-hate relationship with that space, right, in terms of different stuff there. The lyrics are, you said he said it was forthright. I would agree. Um, I I don't really consider them to be overly profound, but they're there as think pieces. And that's why it's funny to hear that story that you talked about people recording answers to questions Mm -hmm. almost as think pieces while the lyrics are also think pieces while you're sitting and either staring at the sky, which I think is part of why dark side of the moon was picked, right? Even the art or taking copious amounts of drugs or socially appropriate amounts of drugs. Right. Um, And this is where Pink Floyd becomes Pink Floyd for better or worse. It's hard to even rate this album because it's just, it's dark side of the moon every everybody has played this album or had this played for you i feel like if you know music the joke was always that this was I, my joke for rumors by fleetwood mac is that if you were born in the 70s they issued to this at your birth from like 1976 <laughs> 78 this is the album it's like the second anybody tells someone that they're getting serious about music they're like dude you need to listen to like dark side and i do think that how you respond to listening to dark side sort of describes what your future journey would be for most people it's like wow but then i think you always become more sophisticated than this <laughs> and which is funny because pink floyd was not that early right it was way more sophisticated but this is where i don't want to say they dumbed down their sound but they they took the sound that became instantly accessible while mm-hmm. taking the the art rock stuff so Here's the deal, I don't really love Pink Floyd. I have never really loved Pink Floyd. They don't do much for me. I find the albums to be kind of boring and generic, which is, I I can appreciate that they're doing a lot of different stuff, I just don't find the stuff that they're doing very interesting. I know that sounds blasphemous for people, for Dark Side of the Moon. I actually think that if you're going to listen to this sound, there's other Pink Floyd albums that we're going to be covering in the very near future that are more interesting versions of this sound. But I also respect the fact that this is almost like rock puberty for people. You hear this and it graduates you into either stranger artier or stuff or other classic rock. I feel that's what this album's lasting legacy is. It is it's like a gateway it drug. the gateway drug for <laughs> yes, for classic rock or art rock or difficult rock or rock that's not standard. It's not so hard that you can't get in there, but it's not so basic that you don't represent said. that it's a yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you don't take a step up. So therein lies my tribute to Pink Floyd. Congratulations for writing the ultimate. Like, come, you know, coming of age music album because that's what this will be. Um, so I don't love it, but I also appreciate it and respect it, and certainly know how influential and hugely popular it is. So I'm going to kind of punt to the other two guys because there you go, that's been my view on this album since 12 years old when I first heard it.
2: All right, well, I'm going to be quite a bit harsher on this album. I don't, I, I am confounded by this album, I don't understand why it's so popular because frankly i don't think it's very good and i appreciate the fact that we listened to their other albums leading up to this because this is completely uninteresting compared to their previous albums i while I didn't like the previous albums, I at least respected the fact that they are trying to do something different. This seems like they're almost like selling out and like trying to cater to more people. I don't understand why this album is so popular. It 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 seems boring. It doesn't seem like it would be fun on drugs. It doesn't seem like it's offering anything like psychedelic or or here. And I, I think we've listened to dozens of albums that are more interesting than this album is on on any number of levels. There are some good songs. I think Money's my favorite song because I like kind of when they use different random sounds to create a song like they do at the beginning of that. I'm always a fan of that. And I think it's got strong guitars on that. And they also have strong guitars on, on Time. That's the other one that kind of stands out for me. But other than that, I just... I mean, they, they put a, a woman vocalist on that one song. I mean, they can't even take credit for that song because it's, like, a completely different band. The I I agree with John. I think this is their most accessible album, but I don't... Like, do people... I, I, and we've alluded to this before. Like, do Pink Floyd fans even like this album? Because it sounds so different compared to their previous stuff. Like, this is such kind of a... a Almost a cheapening, or a trans, such a stark transition to what they were, and I know we've said before that Sid Barrett was kind of an influence on that, on that earlier inc- incarnation of the band, and I guess maybe this is them growing out of of his influence. But so, on some level, I guess I could understand it that way. But um, I don't. I don't. Also, you, Matt, you described kind of all of the the production tricks and and things that they do on this album i don't really hear any of that or it doesn't seem like that complicated to me especially compared to you know the all of the kraut rock that we've listened to and some of the other and even stuff with like that brian wilson was doing and things like that i don't hear i didn't really pay attention to the lyrics to be fair so i can't really comment on if they're complicated I didn't really hear it as a concept album at all um all the things that you mentioned yeah they're certainly concepts but I don't think they're that like really comes into play in this album I think all the other you know the Who concept album and and um or both of the Who concept albums were more interesting than this was if it was a concept album I did like the on the run, as the electronic, and I appreciate the fact that you said that it was done live that is is interesting it 's not it would be easy just nowadays just to kind of create a looping a looping sound mm-hmm. it it does remind me of electronic running when they're <laughs> in that song but yeah i i don't i never heard this song album or was introduced to this album as a younger as a teenager so i was and I was never So it was never a gateway album to me to other things. I don't, John always brings up the the Pink Floyd, uh, you know, planetarium stuff. I I don't even think this would be enjoyable in a planetarium. I'd rather listen to like dozens of other (laughs) albums in a planetarium (laughs) than this one. I I just like, this is really like mind boggling. The more I listen to this album, I just like don't understand. I'm like, I feel like an alien or something. Like what's the big deal with this album? So it's overhyped. I think it's just overhyped and overrated, ultimately. It may be more accessible Pink Floyd, but I don't know if it's better Pink Floyd. And maybe there'll be albums down the road that are better Pink Floyd, but I just don't. With the exception of, I I do like the album cover. I kind of like that stark, simple design. I think that's kind of had a lasting pop cultural imprint, as well as you didn't mention any of the kind of legacy stuff with Wizard of Oz and playing this album backwards and stuff like that. I think that has kind of stood the... the test of time at least in film war but um yeah i just don't convince me that it's, it's amazing matt josh yeah, that I was, was so
3: that was i think that was your worst take i've ever heard <laughs> what are you talking about what if you did you listen to the how how familiar were you with this before i was not very week? familiar with it did you ever hear it before
2: i must have at some point when it was, yeah. you know, because it's on the list of best albums or whatever. No, okay.
3: So first of all, I'm not going to sit here and say that this is the second best album of all time. That that's what I think. However, this is a phenomenal album, and I I love it. I've always loved it. Um, I, I I don't know what you're looking for. You're you're you you you're like it's. I, you didn't like the Pink Floyd before Because it was all out there and weird and now they do Something that's more accessible and you're like What's the what, you know that's not as good As the other stuff it's like I'm not I'm not sure What you're going for there <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know but uh, I, I can get I can understand if you feel that It's too spacey or it's Too much space there is John said it there Is a lot of space on this Um. so this album Does you know pardon the pun But breathe right so that allows you to kind Of you know kind of kind of be there with it Particularly with a song like Us and Them I think that's. Like the ultimate version of that, it's just this very slow mm-hmm. track. That's the drums are very slow. It's got this. You I mean talk about, you know, atmospheric and ethereal, and you
2: know, uh, it, th- this is this is like a definition of that. Um, I feel like some I, of their other songs on their previous albums were more spacey. If that's what you were looking for, maybe my definition of spacey really? is different than well. <laughs>
3: I, I don't know maybe Sasha Full is I, the 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 Sid Bear I stuff thought, is
2: totally different than this you know
3: like I was spacey
0: I always thought the concept of this album was space it always felt like to me because it's just wide open yeah it, it, the heart that that like heartbeat sound if mm. That's the production. You, the, the, yeah. Like you'd recognize the tricks, Josh. Like because the the heartbeat trick comes to mind. The double tracking.
3: Maybe I've just
2: heard all these tricks before. Well, too yeah, much to like I, not appreciate yeah. it. You know? but,
3: but you're also like, I don't know what they're doing. Like techno, like you. But you said you liked On the Run, which was all electronics. It was all studio stuff. It was all done. You know, in in the moment, and it wasn't stuff stuff like this was not being done then too. That's the other thing. This is an immaculately produced album. Now, some people might go, "Well, it's overproduced. It's too much." And okay, me, that's, maybe, that's my like, camp. But you're you know, right. It's but immaculately it's, produced. But it's yeah. so crisp and clear. The guitar. I I will say, uh, "Time." That guitar solo on "Time" is one of not that it's not because it's complicated. That's one of my all time favorite. Guitar solos because behind it, the bass, the bass of that, the menacing pounding—you know—the bass behind that, along with the drums, and then that gu- David Gilmore's guitar tone is one of my favorite guitar tones. It's it's pure like it's 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 pure jo- not joy but like it's it's like the perfect sounding guitar sound um, as far as I'm concerned. gave David Gilmore's guitar playing is a, is is tremendous here. Um, and you 've got just interesting time signatures you do mention money it 's like done in seven eight time, and then they cut when they do the they do the uh, guitar solo they cut back to four four, mm-hmm. and then they bring it back to seven eight that 's just such a cool bluesy you know bass riff that he 's doing there um, and it kind of you know they bring in the saxophone solo, which you know if you don 't like the sax, I get, you probably don 't like that, but I think it 's a really interesting you know complement to what 's happening there. Um, and it's melodic it's very beautiful like the piano parts that rick wright is doing it's just so the, the great gig in the sky those like the, the transitions the chords so well done so well done and um you know uh us and them as well just a very pretty walking melodic kind of so- uh, song um and I love the way that it ends eclipse is just a really cool ending to it. So this bombastic ending, that's kind of just like, it's a little repetitive, but it's also very short and it's just this, you know, this emphasis on the, uh, on the overall album. So, I mean, I get the the knock on Pink Floyd. I get why, you know, it's, it's, you know, if, if you don't like the, the spaciness of the record, um, you know, Gilmore's echoey, you know, vocals are permeated throughout this, you know? Um, but, uh, but just because it's something that, yes, is maybe, you know, probably a lot of people are liking to do drugs behind this, doesn't take away from what's, you know, musically what's happening in here. Um, I. It's, i don 't know if i don 't think it 's my favorite Pink Floyd album, I think we 're still going to probably get there, but uh I, I think and I think john 's right too. I think this is you know you say it 's kind of like a gateway you know kind of album and 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 I would probably agree with that. Um, I do think lots of Pink Floyd fans you 're asking do Pink Floyd fans like this album? Yes, they do they like it <laughs> mm-hmm. a whole hell of a lot um, so and so do a lot of other people that aren 't pink Floyd fans i mean this this album there 's a reason why it sold forty five plus yeah. million copies you know what i mean so i i don't know what to tell you man what are you missing i just listen to it if you're not getting this then i i don't know what to say i don't know how you convince somebody to like an album that they so decidedly do not um if you're feeling like it's overrated it's at number two of all time i get it when you're looking at and we just talked about this before coming on air if you look at the top 10 uh, al- albums on best ever albums of all time it's the beatles radiohead and um Pink Floyd, right? That's like, that's it. Um, So it's, it's, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But to to say that this album is, is widely overrated or not good is just i don't know in my view patently not true um this is a tremendously talented band they and they are also really unique there's not a whole lot of bands that sounded like this then there's not a whole lot of bands that sound like this now or in between you know they have a very unique sound when you hear a gilmore guitar lick or you hear um you know uh, uh, his the vocals it's it's decidedly Pink Floyd um and so it for for better or worse I guess I I love it I think it sounds great um and uh I get. but I guess it's not for everybody you know um, this... so go
0: ahead Josh
2: I was just gonna say I, I it may be one of those albums that I'll never understand and I think knowing the hype around it has has probably damaged yeah. my ability to form an opinion on it um just somewhat but I mean, even like just, I think that listening to the Genesis albums, I feel like those are kind of more complex than what's going on here uh, musically.
3: Oh, I would agree with that for sure.
2: I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing the complexity here. I'm just saying, why aren't those albums appreciated more than than this? Oh, because they're way more, they're
3: way more niche. There's no way a Genesis album selling anywhere near 45 million copies. This is, yeah, this is something. This is capturing. Like the best of both worlds, right? You're getting the massive popularity, like the pop. Culture popularity of, of of the you know the easy listening nature of this record, yeah. along with the artistic credi- yeah. you know credibility of the of the critics and the and the people and this is considered prog rock, which I always kind of took like this is not what I could I don't know what I would call this. It's more yeah. not prog rock, you know, but this is more of a critically acclaimed album as well. And it, P- Pink Floyd is a very revered band, so you're getting the you're getting the both of that Genesis is not getting anywhere close to what Pink so Floyd did.
0: Can um, you know can popularity t- wise? Can I attempt to jump in because this is going to be, this has happened before, and I I sort of referenced Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water, where this happened, but this is going to be the first album where my personal feelings and taste for the album is not going to be reflected in how I rank the album. Because I will give this album a pretty high score in terms of ranking it artistically. Because everything Matt said is true. The guitar tone of David Gilmour is... A definitive guitar tone, which is clean and hits the ears for those that love Pink Floyd in a way that stands out. It's it's for those that love Pink Floyd. It is the ideal guitar tone. Mm-hmm. The production is somehow both accessible and moving the genre forward. Um, the drums are an interesting way to play drums because they are just in the world like exist. I I can't really describe the drums on Pink Floyd. They just, they're there. You recognize them, but they're not played in any sort of way. They blend in. Right. It's not flashy at all. It's not, no, it's not designed to be either. It's not to keep the time or be flashy. So, uh, but I also agree with almost everything Josh said as well. And so I kind of bridge the gap where like I immediately can recognize the importance of this album and what it represented in terms of moving the genre forward. So I, in no way, do I think this album is overrated or stuff. But also personal preference, just the the Pink Floyd sound. Of sp- what's been really fascinating is how much more I like experimental Pink Floyd than I mm-hmm. like this Pink Floyd. That caught me for a loop a little bit because I would not have thought that. But um, yeah, it just I. I I appreciate it, and everything Matt said is absolutely correct, uh, including the bass lines. It just is – its the Pink Floyd is the weirdest disconnect between me appreciating what it is and not in any way judging you if you like it, but just a, a group – everything I really viscerally connect with in music is sort of an opposite reaction to what Pink Floyd is, I think, is how I've always described it. And so because of that – when I listened to this, it was like a reverse gateway drug for me. It's mm-hmm. like, I want to listen to stuff that doesn't sound like this. And a lot of... No, I mean, and I don't mean to be mean, because it wasn't like I hated it. It's just yeah. like, there's got to be something that sounds different than this. And a lot of my music that I sought out went in a different direction from what this sounds like. So I think that's kind of where it comes from. So I,
2: well, and, Go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, I think maybe, maybe, like you guys were saying, how this is kind of like the the amalgamation of like different of different things to make it the most accessible and maybe that's kind of where it i have the problem or why where it's not working for me it's because we've heard all of these i've cut it's like if we pulled pink floyd apart into like different types of music it's like the other stuff is more interesting to hear than when it's like combined together if that makes sense
0: pink floyd's like the most accessible art rock ever is what I think that's their gift. It's mm. like yeah. they're the most accessible art rock band who's ever existed. And it's hard to be an accessible art rock band. And I think we've listened to stuff that just might seem more interesting, Josh, because we've listened to a lot of art rock that's from challenging to right. borderline unlistenable to great to everything. And so when you get to this, it doesn't... But like there is a real amazing... A, Trait. When you say make an accessible art rock album, it's like, oh, shit, yeah. well, how do I do that? And this is it. And, and so it's complicated enough for you to feel like you're listening to something that is um, revolutionary, right, if you're a type of person, but also accessible enough that you're like, oh, this is homework, I don't want to do this. I think and that's, that's what, yeah. I
2: think that's kind of what it is, guys. I think it's like almost like entry level art rock to me. And when you can say, okay, if you like if you like this, well, then you should listen to Can because this is much, or you should listen to Genesis or like any of the other prog rock bands that we listen to because it's like that's like the step up. And I feel like maybe I'm at. Maybe I'm at some like music listening level where it just doesn't sound as I can't believe, or too foundational or something. than I can't believe these I'm gonna. Bands.
0: <laughs> I can't believe I'm gonna defend Pink Floyd. Who would have thought that I would be taking this? <laughs> uh, Pink Floyd could probably make an album similar to Can. I don't think Can can make a Pink Floyd album, and that's why Pink Floyd's Pink Floyd and Can's Can.
2: Does that make well, sense? I mean, does uh, like the Brian Eno album that is like a, is like way more interesting and also somehow accessible in my opinion mm-hmm. and would be something much more deserving of attention and worthwhile, you know, hype than than this has achieved.
0: I I would agree with the interesting for me personally, I don't know if I agree with the accessible because what but the you reason got, now themselves, yeah.
3: Because because what they're doing here though, there's still these moments that are just that that are I don't know, I don't want to say more interesting, but they're it's more varied, I would think cuz well I don't even know if that's the right term either. I mean, they're using more traditional, you know, instruments, I guess you could say, right? Mm -hmm. So when you got like money or time or, you know, eclipse, I mean, you know, you got, you got guitar solos, you've got bass lines, you've got drums, you've got more traditional sounding stuff, which is going to be something that generally speaking, people are going to, you know, gravitate more towards. Um, It's more radio friendly. You know what I mean? There's vocals here, (laughs) you know, Brian, you know, didn't have like most of his songs were like just instrumentals. Um, That's true. So. I, and I think, too, I mean, Pink Floyd were aware that they were not as gifted songwriters as, you know, Sid Barrett was. So when he left, you know, one of the things that they were saying is, like, we're not going to we're not going to be great songwriters necessarily, but we're going to be great you, you musicians. And, um, you know, we're going to let the tone and the and this and, the, and the, the sonic nature of, of and the production really be our, you know, our bread mm-hmm. and butter. And that's and they, they they embrace that, you know, and that's what you're That's what you're getting here. Um so, uh,
0: so I think that that's, that's something that they were consciously trying and they, to do. And yeah, and they were successful with that because you, and like I said, personal pref. I, I can differentiate personal preference and quality of art. Right. And that's why Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd, this album will end up in the top 25% of the albums of the seventies for me in terms of my rating, even though I don't love it. Um, and I, I mean, I think that is that one, am I weird in that, that I can, it can be both for me like i can absolutely appreciate something that no, i don't personally have an no i don't think but, it's
3: yeah. i mean i think when i do my list it's going to be my own personal preference right. um Same but here. i but i hear what you're saying you know um okay. for sure because you can you can recognize this album. like i could maybe recognize that sergeant pepper is the beatles best album or most important album but is it my favorite no far far from it you know there's probably four or five other ones i like better than it but um but yeah that's that's just the way that is and i would i would also say too josh i mean you have to keep in mind this is seven this is early 73 This sounds so good, (laughs) like, even today. You don't even need to remaster this, you know what I mean? But the production, Mm. just the way that it sounds, you know, it doesn't sound for its 70s. It's its its own thing. It's a unique record. Um, And I think that that's part of why it stands out as well is because, you know, people had to get this because there wasn't, like John said, you don't really get this many other places,
2: Um, so. I guess, yeah, that's an aspect of the albums, any of the albums that I don't really pay attention to too often, so.
3: Well, it's, it's, I, I typically don't either, uh, but I think that you have to, you have to bring into the conversation, particularly when you're talking about a massive album like this, you know, it's yeah. just, you know, there's, there's a, there's a whole number of reasons why it was so popular
0: and it's just like everything kind of coming together. So well, um, I can always tell clean production, whether it be yeah. that Boston album or run Grin, or this, there's just albums that sound cleaner than others. Those yeah. are the three that jump out immediately with like very clean production, dark side, Boston, Boston. And that's, uh. Something Anything album by Rundgren. They're the cleanest albums I think we've listened to in the 70s.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I and I would say too, Josh, I I fall in that camp too like sometimes you know sometimes it's like well this album's rated so high I it's not it's not driving with me so I'm going right. to like what's going on with Marvin Gaye. I felt that way. For, I've yeah. been there before, but I I don't know. I just think you're wrong on this. I think I love I I don't see what's so hard to like about it. It's it, there's a, it's melodic. It's got you know a lot of beautiful parts to it. Um I and I I can't I can't emphasize enough how much rick wright's piano playing and david gilmore's guitar playing are just so important to the sound of this band it's so good and one of the and two of the big reasons why i love them so much um so uh so a big thumbs up for me for it's freaking dark side of the moon you know it's like it's a, <laughs> yeah i don't know what else to say but i can tell you this josh if you do like the money the, the money sounds, it's interesting, that's one of your favorite. You like cash registers and coins clinking. <laughs> um, if you like that, you can I hear more money. of that in a, in Millie Vanilli and Marky Mark and the Funky Funky Bunch songs because they covered they put those sounds into their uh, songs <laughs> Money for Millie Vanilli and I Need Money by Marky Mark and the Funky oh. Bunch. And also, if you wanted to maybe hear this album done in different ways, there's been many other uh, uh, genres that people have used to convey this album, do covers of the record, including there's a string quartet version, um, an acapella version, which sounds like Pentatonix was doing Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I did no, listen to you. that. I don't really <laughs> recommend it. Um, there's a dub a dub album, album, uh, Dub Side of the Moon and Dubber Side of the Moon, which is kind of like, I thought it was going to be like dubstep, but dub is more like a reggae-based, kind of electronic mm-hmm. reggae-based song uh, mm-hmm. sound. Um, so you got that. And then there's also a bluegrass version called Dark Side of the Moonshine. So you can <laughs> you can listen to that, Josh. Um, and then, then I forgot about this. Flaming Lips did a whole cover of this record several years ago with a band called Star Death and the White Dwarfs. And um, I actually saw them play it in its entirety at Bonnaroo. They That was one of their touring things that they did. So it's, wow. it's, that's, that's a more, you might like that actually, Josh, that you want to say a more interesting record they're doing. It doesn't, at some parts, it sounds like the Pink Floyd version and other parts, it doesn't sound like it at all. Um, and it's also in the recording registry, the, the Library of Congress put it in the National Recording Registry. Um, and you can watch the, uh, was it Dark Side of the Rainbow, The Wizard of Oz? Syncing up, that's on YouTube now. Mm. So you you don't even need to do the album and the movie at the same time. Yeah. You always had to start the disc at the third lion roar, now you just watch it on YouTube. So it's, right. um, yeah, it's got a couple parts that are cool, but for the most part, it's like, yeah, this is. There's no way they do It's this just on
2: like Urban Legend, really, that yeah. spiraled out I, of control.
3: There there are cool parts. Don't get me wrong. There's parts yeah. where you're like, whoa, that's really. But it's like. But then Nick Mason, I think, at one point said you could probably do that with so many other albums and so many other movies, you know, that just happen to fall in line at mm-hmm. certain parts. So,
2: but yeah, I mean, we cover their next three albums also. So maybe oh, I'll, we like sure one, do. I'll like one of those better. I don't know.
3: Yeah. And John's right. This is where Pink Floyd becomes the Pink Floyd that, you know, blew up. And I mean, this, this, this changed the trajectory of all their lives and everything like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the next three uh, are going to fall more in line
0: with us. And I'm going to give each an honest listen and go with no preconceptions, but my take on this one is the same as it's always been an essential mm-hmm. listen, a must listen. If you're listening to this podcast and now an I've never liked, and I don't think I ever <laughs> will like, and I mean, it can, it can be both, you know, and that's the fair thing. You know what I mean? And you, Do you can have a, what's the song. Is there any song on here that you like nominally? I, see, I don't despise this album. I just don't like it. it, it, it there's a difference, you know, it's
2: not I like, to ugh, me, to,
3: but to me, miserable. time, like if I was to point a song to anybody, it would easily be time.
2: Yeah, like that probably. is, you know. I just think like. The, do you think "Brain Damage" is the most well-known song on the album? No, no. no. Money. Money. money, money, was a single. Oh, okay. Yeah, money was a top twenty single. So um. yeah,
0: money and time are the two that immediately
3: yeah.
2: pop off for me. Those are the album. ones that jumped out to me too. I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, but yeah, no. I, I, you could absolutely have a different opinion, me on this, and you're probably right. But for me personally, it just doesn't hit. But that doesn't mean all Pink Floyd won't. And like I said up until this point two of them i really liked metal had its moments just you know and i know that i know enough variations of what's going to go that there might be stuff that hits but for me right now
3: well i can say this little 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 tip of my hand here the next two albums uh much longer songs on those records than (laughs) what you have here josh so if you wanted something a little you know less less uh straightforward we'll get that so yeah
2: okay well, do you want tell, me to very tell quick- me I'm wrong in the comments in the YouTube when John puts yeah, this I'll, up? In <laughs>
3: the yeah, yeah, they will.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, let me run through very quickly
0: the albums we're going to cover in the next album, which is going to be a cold listen and hot take. Sound good, guys? Because I know mm-hmm. we're running long here. So we got Bob Marley, Catch a Fire. We got the Isley Brothers, Three Plus Three. Roxy Music, For Your Pleasure. Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark. Ten CC. Sheet music, the New York Dolls, self-titled, and Bruce Springsteen, Wild Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle. Interestingly enough, guys, eight albums, but our our least amount of runtime of any Cold Listen Hot Take we've done. Okay. So a lot of quick bangers this week. That's what she said. Yeah, except that's the <laughs> second time Josh is no, Josh, on one Josh, that's my line. <laughs> and with that profound final statement, I think I'm going to sign off for this week. Uh, as always, you know, check us out on the socials uh, at Coming the Stacks on Twitter, our YouTube account, Coming Stacks, uh, and you can email us at ComingTheStacks at Have a wonderful weekend, folks, and take care of yourself. The Coming the Stacks podcast is hosted by John, Josh, and Matt, who thank you, as always, for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our podcast host, Anchor, for hosting our full archive of shows. We'd also like to thank Cleanfeed for providing our audio, and Audacity for providing the editing software we use for the creation of the show. Combing the Stacks can be found on the following 10 platforms and counting. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Viewer feedback can be sent to ComingThestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at the and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow. A website is coming on May 1st, 2021, and we'll make sure to let you know where to go.